going to throw for it. He's going to throw it to the end zone. Lobs it up. One-on-one. -on -one. Cut. Michigan. Touchdown. I can't believe this. Rory Roundtree. There's a penalty flag. Thrown at the two. All right, I got to be careful again this week, Don. Why's that? Well, just like last week, I was a little hoarse after Pearl Jam 20. Right. A weekend away with Pearl Jam. Well, you and I spent the weekend with Pearl Jam again. Yeah, I was a little hoarse this morning. I'm feeling good now, though. Yeah, so I'm, and I said something to you before the first show. So we went to two Pearl Jam shows this weekend in Toronto. And I said we have to be very careful because we can't both be hoarse come Tuesday. And you had a very, 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 very special experience that I want you to share with our listeners because I'm very, very happy for you. Normally, I probably wouldn't have been so happy for you, but since you had missed Pearl Jam 20, I feel <laughs> like I feel like you know God really did really did something nice for you. Yeah, the Pearl Jam 10 Club uh, allows you to buy tickets through the club. That are, uh, your seating is based on seniority for the most part. And what they started doing a couple of years ago was giving away rows 1 and 2 and rows 9 and 10 in a lottery. And me and the wife won the lottery, and we sat basically front row center. We were about, I don't know, maybe five feet from center stage. So it was amazing. We caught a couple of guitar picks from the from Mike McCready, the, the lead guitarist. And, I mean, Eddie was right there in front of us. It was the most fun I probably had at a show. And that's so cool. Um, you know, sometimes when it goes to show, that sometimes when something that happens and it's a big bummer, you couldn't make Pearl Jam 20. And I know it wasn't the same for me, and I, I, I'm sincere about that, that it wasn't the same without you there. And then you get the chance to go the following weekend, and it's almost like they knew. And <laughs> yeah. uh, you got to sit near the front there. So I'm really excited about that. And I'm also really excited about the Sportscasters episode number 41 here. It is September 13th, 2011. We are in Buffalo, New York, as always. And uh, we got a great show today. We have Lee Jenkins, who, if you don't know a lot about Lee, he's a sports writer for Sports Illustrated, a senior writer there. Uh, he writes for the magazine, does some stuff online, writes about baseball, football. He's really kind of gets to do his own thing. And he really is the nicest guy that we've ever encountered and we've encountered some really nice guys i don't mean to put anyone else down and uh actually the other two guests on the show today are super nice guys as well but there's something about lee that you know it he's just he makes us feel like we're the most important people in the world yeah you know and like doing this show is just so important to him and i can't appreciate what he's done for this show enough and he, he's going to join us and also we're very lucky to be able to have just two days after or one day really after the end of the first week of the nfl season we're so lucky to have jason Lackenfora from the nfl network nfl insider jason's going to join us on the show to talk about all things nfl and you know i don't want to say it's a second place but one of the other guys that's maybe the nicest guy we've ever encountered is john wertheim who, of course, the first time he was on the show, he was promoting his book, Scorecasting, which we loved. It was one of the first books that we did for our book club. And John has been at the U.S. Open uh, with Richard Deitch, who was on last week. 
And uh, John's going to join us to kind of close out all the things that happened at the U.S. Open. So we got a very busy show. We have Lee Jenkins. We have Jason Lackenfora. We have John Wertheim. So let's get to it and do three things. Let's play a game. All right. Count of three. One. All righty. I'll take it off. Two. The oil patterns on a PBA lane are very, very difficult. Three. I might be able to beat Jamarcus Russell at quarterback. <laughs> this is the funnest night ever. <laughs> Did we just become best friends? Yep. Now let's move on to other business. All right, it's three things. Here's where we give uh, three things we noticed in sports this week. My first thing, and maybe the most important in the world of football, is uh, Peyton Manning. Unfortunately, I believe it was Thursday, underwent a second neck surgery, which it may not end his season, uh, but it's effectively going to end the Colts season. Um, there were a lot of really good tweets out there about the Manning thing the day of. I mean, not to make light of something like that, but... One from our buddy Sooner Zach that said the NFL should give the MVP of, to Peyton Manning at the end of the, today's Colts versus Texans game. It really does go to show how that team really works through Peyton. Even the Ed from Vegas got into it saying Peyton Manning has proved that he is the MVP of all time today. No other player has ever meant more to their team. It may be more amazing than that tweet is the fact that every word is spelled correctly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the Ed sure is a character. But you're, you're – you're, I mean – it's so true. And, you know, I made a bold prediction last week that the Colts might be able to kind of rally around themselves and kind of maybe win one for the Gipper kind of a thing. Right. And to be honest, before the show, like when you told me that, it's like, oh, I was kind of thinking that too. Maybe they would just put one together. Houston's always kind of that team that seems a little bit overrated. So maybe the Colts would, would do it. But it's no. just not there. No, not it's at all. It's just not there. And maybe we'll get into this in Five and Fantasy and maybe you won't. You know, they're still going to throw for some yards. Right. You know, and people like Reggie Wayne, who have some talent, they're going to still catch some passes. But that team is just so much built around getting the lead, counting on Peyton Manning, you know, being a defense that's ahead. They're built around speed. They like to rush the quarterback. That's right, yeah. You know, they like to get a team in a position where they're behind, where they have to try to keep up with Peyton Manning. And. You know, maybe the Saints are like this with Drew Brees. You know, maybe to some extent, although the Packers have a ton of talent all around the field, but maybe the, attack, the Packers with uh, with uh, um, Aaron Rodgers and, of course, the Patriots with Tom Brady. There's a reason that teams with great quarterbacks like this have incredible runs and, and win right. Super Bowls. And it's because without them, the team, everything else falls apart. Right. You know? and to be fair with uh, Green Bay, in the only start they had without Rodgers last year, they, I believe they lost, but it was a tight game. They have a lot of talent all around the field. So they're the team that maybe could get away, probably not with Aaron Rodgers without the whole season. No, no, no. Maybe for a few games here or there because they are surrounded with a lot of talent. But when you look at the Colts, yeah, they're, you know, John Har- or Jim Harbaugh made his coaching debut for the San Francisco 49ers this weekend. He was the last person to take a snap <laughs> yep. as a starting quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts. When, when was that? I don't know. Maybe I was 12 years old. Right. Well, maybe closer to 17, 18, because Manning was drafted in 1998. But, I mean, it's just it's, it's, it's hard, devastating. It's hard to argue with a Colts' success, but do you think maybe they built the team a little too much around the quarterback, or when you have a franchise quarterback, that's what you do? Yeah, and when you have a guy who's so dependable. Right. I mean, let's not forget that Peyton Manning, Hasn't missed a start his entire career. Right, right. You know, and maybe 
when we we're finished with this season and we get past this lockout a bit, maybe we'll say the biggest casualty of the lockout was that the NFL was unfortunately had to go a, maybe a whole season without Peyton Manning because he was he's been saying all along, you know, it hasn't been right. I haven't had the chance to work with my trainers who know my body. This rehab has been slow because of it, you know. And I just hope it works out because I'd hate for I'd hate. To think that we've seen the last of them, right? And that is and, uh, kind of a threat. I guess uh, a little bit of talk of that potentially, but um, I just hope it's not true. All right, my first thing, you know, it's been a really, really ugly year for college football. Uh, North Carolina and Ohio State kind of gathered all the headlines over the summer with their scandals. Jim Tressel was forced to resign in shame. Uh, Taylor or uh, Pryor was forced right. to flee to the NFL. Um, LSU's had some issues with a bar fight and had to suspend some players. Uh, USC has been on probation. They're still on probation. Then we had the University of Miami thing, you know, and there's been words like death penalty thrown around right. in that scandal. And now today we find out that everyone loves Boise State, right? Boise State's the team that beat Big Bad Oklahoma in the Sugar Bowl on all these trick plays, and they play in a blue field, and they take on the big guy. They're not in one of the big BCS conferences, and they win all their games. And today comes the news that Boise State is going to be on probation for three years, and uh, they were imposed plenty of sanctions uh, today, the football program and other sports. Uh, there was some problem with women's tennis. Uh, they're, they have a ban for... Uh, tennis for recruiting and scholarship restrictions and the football team has lost a bunch of scholarships and it's like we've said it on this show and we've asked Stuart Mandel about it is it possible in this day and age to to build a college football program that can compete for the national championship year in and year out and not break some rules right and maybe we're finding out more and more that it just can't happen and Boise State is just another list Another team on a long list of teams that have gotten in trouble with the NCAA in really just a short period of time, right? Summer's not that long here in Buffalo, but since it started, I just named about five teams that have gotten in trouble with the NCAA, and here we are at the end of summer. Yeah, it doesn't seem, uh, like you said, it doesn't seem possible. And also today, Fresno, or what's today, 13th? Yesterday, Fresno State had uh, as many as two dozen football players tied to welfare fraud. Oh, God. So it just seems it like never ends. at every angle, uh, colleges, NCAA specifically, Division One colleges are looking to cut corners and cheat and get an edge any way they can. I mean, it's as rampant as steroids were to baseball, just cheating in general is to college football. And there was a nice article today on Deadspin. I suggest you check it out. Kind of about what the value of these college football players is worth because I think as these scandals build and build and build – there's going to be more and more momentum for the possibility of maybe paying some of these guys. Right. So who knows? My second thing this week, Michael Jordan kind of quietly was fined 100 grand by the NBA for speaking to, of all places, the Herald Sun in Australia. Uh, apparently he was chomping at the bits to talk about it, but uh, during the lockout, the NBA has a strict uh, gag order basically on the coaches or on the owners and players and he said quote the model we've been operating under is broken we have 22 or 23 teams losing money so i think we got to come out to some kind of understanding in this partnership that we have to realign 
I know the owners are not going to move off what we feel is necessary for us to get a deal in place so that we can coexist as partners. We need a lot of financial support through the league as well as revenue sharing to keep the business afloat. So he's not really turning any heads with the comments themselves, but because of the gag order, he's going to face a big fine. You know, I remember when the NFL went, or the NHL went through this lockout, and I remember how influential Mario Lemieux and Wayne Gretzky were. And I remember there was a point where they thought the season might be saved because of uh, a move that Lemieux and Gretzky had made and ended up not working out. But I think a player like or a person as great as Michael Jordan is really has a lot of power in this situation. Absolutely. And I think he's someone that, as a, an owner of a team, that the rest of the owners can rally around and really – uh, support each other. And I think a $100,000 fine, I think he's going to be okay. Oh, yeah. You know, I think he'll bounce back from paying that, and I think he probably feels like it was worth it to get his message across. And you know what? It seems like a foregone conclusion to everybody that this season is gone. So if he can push that in the direction of, okay, maybe it's 50-50 that this season is gone, because football never really got to that point where I don't think anyone expected to miss any games. Maybe it got a little hairy toward the end, but I don't think it was ever expected. This season, maybe for over a year now, has been expected to be gone. Right. So if he can push that a little bit closer to the middle and even the odds up a little bit, then then good for him, I guess. Unthinkable tragedy, and I and I mean unthinkable tragedy when I say this, struck the hockey world since yeah. that we since we have uh, joined each other last. But uh, there's the sirens again, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> Our uh, favorite sirens that go by whenever we're recording. But uh, last week, uh, a plane crashed holding an entire hockey team in the KHL, which is the Russian Super League. Probably, arguably, the second best league in the world. You right. can maybe argue the AHL is, but okay. uh, the KHL is right there. And then there's the Swed- Swedish Elite League, which is there as well. But uh, an entire team... Uh, was wiped out. Um, Pavel Dimitra, who spent plenty of time in the National Hockey League, lost his life. There was one player, uh, Alexander Galmanov, who originally had su- survived the crash, but he ended up dying Monday, Right. which officially means that this entire team has been wiped out on a plane crash. Uh, there was some young prospects on the plane that who were in Buffalo just the last winter oh, right. as part of the the uh, World Junior Championships and the gold medal winning team that Russia had that lost their lives. And when we talk about something like this, I mean, it's impossible really to find a silver lining. But if there's going to be one, there's a report today that the KHL has kind of been rattled quite a bit by this, as you would expect. And there's a chance that because of it, the president of the league is looking to boost NHL ties and kind of create a better relationship between the National Hockey League and Russian hockey Hmm. in general. And that's going to be very important as we get closer to the Olympics, which are going to be in Russia in a few years, and the hope that NHL players are going to be a part of that for years. I mean, Alexander Mogilny had to defect to be a part of the National Hockey League. Pavel Burry defected. Um, And then many other players have had trouble uh, because there is no transfer agreement, per se, right. between the NHL and Russia. And there's an article uh, written by Stu Hackle, who's been on this show before, at sportsillustrated.com, uh, that kind of goes over some of the ways that the NHL can help uh, the KHL, who is certainly in need of support. And I'll give the KHL credit. 
uh, the game that the team was traveling to was basically canceled. But uh, the team and the fans came out. Yeah. And they all lined up. And there was pictures of all the players who had passed on the ice. It was really a moving tribute, something that I'd, uh, I'd love for you to check out. But also, uh, check out uh, Stu Hackle and his report. And let's keep an eye on this and see how. And as we get closer to the season, I'm sure Greg Wyshynski from Puck Daddy is going to join us soon. And we can kind of talk to him about how this tragedy, how maybe that can, there can be some good that comes out of it in an improved relationship between the United States and the NHL and Russia. My last thing this week is also hockey-related, but on a happier note. Um, a 14-year-old girl, actually a local girl from Buffalo, named Lexi Peters, will be the first female featured in NHL 12 which has got to make someone like Cammy Granato feel good. But anyway, uh, Lexi Peters, 14-year-old girl from Buffalo, sent a note to EA Sports saying, basically, my brother can use the customized thing to create a player, but there's no girls in there for me to create. So EA wrote her back, and they said they were going to put her in it. And along with that, you can now select female under the appearance so young girls out there can make their likenesses and put them into the game and make them free agents and put them on their favorite teams. So It's awesome. Kind of a nice thing, yeah. If you want to get girls into the into the sport, I know there's plenty of girls that play hockey, so now they have a game where they can uh, feel a little more a part of it. And, you know, NHL, the NHL game franchise there, NHL 12, the EA Sports franchise, it's a game that's released all around the world. Right. And for a long time, women's hockey has always just been about the U.S. and Canada. And it's a great thought to think that that sport can grow in other countries because it'd be a shame if the Olympics for ice hockey for women went the same route that softball had to go. Right, They basically just removed it because there was no competition. And uh, so this could be a great step into building building the female sport. My third thing is a very upbeat and hockey-related story as well. Don and I mentioned we were at some Pearl Jam concerts over the weekend. They were in Toronto, and we spent the afternoon in between the shows at the Hockey Hall of Fame. And I have to say, it's a great place. Yeah, it's very cool. Very cool. Very fun. Reasonably priced. Reasonably priced. It's only $17 to get in. Yeah, you can spend as much time as you'd like in there. They have kind of goofy hours. Yeah. So if you ever plan a trip, make sure you, you check. Their, their website is www.hhof.com. Uh, that, of course, stands for Hockey Hall of Fame. And it's a great place. There's all kinds of cool memorabilia. There's plenty to learn. Uh, Don and I were stuffed by the interactive goalie that you can <laughs> shoot pucks on. He was a cheater. Uh, there was a trivia game, which was kind of fun. Maybe a little too hard, though. Oh, yeah. Um, and just all kinds of great stuff. And there's no league. There's no argument here. Right. I don't think. There's no league in the world that can ha- can have display the strength of trophies that the NHL can. They have amazing trophies, which are in something called the Great Hall, which is used to be a bank vault. And uh, now it's where they have a replica of the Hall of Fame or of the Stanley Cup. And that Stanley Cup was actually in rotation and raised on the ice up until 1993. Yep. Uh, That Stanley Cup is there. You can see all the other awards. There's still an actual vault in there where they hold things like the original Stanley Cup, which was just the one top cup part right the original cup also people always have wondered how, well what as more teams win and of course your names are engraved on there how does that how does it not get bigger and bigger well they take pieces off 
and those pieces are all also in, in, in the, the vault. vault. Yep. So it's a great place, the Hockey Hall of Fame. Totally recommend it. Everyone that worked there seemed to be pretty knowledgeable too. Yeah, great staff, really knowledgeable. A beautiful store. Yep. Uh, maybe maybe a little overpriced, but nothing <laughs> nothing crazy. Right. I mean, you can get a T-shirt in there for less than that, the T-shirt I bought at the Pearl Jam concert. Right. So it's not outrageously priced. Um, and uh, it's just a it's a great place. So so I encourage you to check it out. I agree, one hundred percent. All right. So that's it for five on fantasy or <laughs> for three things. We got so many. Things, things going on now, today. Yeah. I'm confusing myself. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Jason Lackenfora. Then we're going to come back with Five on Fantasy. Don, we might not have time, much time to talk ourselves on Five on Fantasy because 10 minutes of it are going to be hijacked by our listeners. We both lost. Ugly. In our, uh, I only lost because Tom Brady threw for a billion yards. I would have won otherwise. Uh, but we both lost in our uh, listeners league, so Hopefully, we'll have two listeners. We've given them a half an hour period where they can call in to be a part of the show. Hopefully, they'll uh, they'll take us up on that. Also, we're going to have Lee Jenkins. We're going to do a segment today we've never done before where we're just going to kind of react to some of the things that happened over the weekend in the football, college, and pro. And, of course, we're going to have John Wertheim to talk about the U.S. Open, and we're going to close the whole show out with Big Four. So let's start start a break, get this thing going, and we'll be right back with Jason Lackenfora. Our next guest is from Baltimore, Maryland, and is a graduate of Syracuse University. Early in his career, he worked at the Detroit Free Press, covering the Detroit Red Wings. After leading the Red Wings to a few Stanley Cups, he spent 10 years at the <laughs> Washington Post, including five years he spent on the Redskins beat. In 2009, he joined the NFL Network, where he's an NFL insider, blogger, and reg- regular contributor to NFL Total Access and other programs on the station. A warm sportscaster's welcome for the second time to the great Jason Lackenfora. How are you doing today, Jason? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing very well. Very ha- excited to have you on for a bunch of reasons. And the first thing is, is that you were recently on the Dave Damashek podcast, which is now on the NFL Network. And you'd never be talking to us right now if it wasn't for Dave. Dave's a big has been a big influence on our careers. Uh, he's been a big part of the show and building the show. He's a good friend of ours. And I was very excited to hear you on the show. And I was very excited to hear all about this great music that you love. And I got to share something with you. Uh, I'm sure you know that Pearl Jam is kind of in the middle of this Pearl Jam 20 thing. They had a uh, big destination weekend concert celebrating their 20th anniversary. And Cameron Crowe is making a movie. And last night, I actually celebrated Pearl Jam 71, and my partner celebrated <laughs> Pearl Jam 25, meaning I went to my 71st Pearl Jam concert. He went to his 25th. So we're big Pearl Jam fans. We're big music fans. And uh, we're excited to have you on the show today. And I know that you love punk rock. And I have to tell you that last night, we were treated. Uh, Mud Honey was the opener. and a couple Oh, of the, awesome. A couple of the guys from Mud Honey. And Pearl Jam at the end performed "Kick Out the Jams," which MC5, I believe, yeah, yeah it's by MC Five from Detroit. So I figured you'd be excited. We were going to bring you in to "Kick Out the Jams," but we don't want to scare any away anyone away. I was it's a little say, rough you around the edges, your, you know. Uh, our sensor delay button, <laughs> right? Or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, we'd love to talk to you for a minute before we get into the NFL about music and uh, definitely. 
Yeah, so you're talking to two Pearl Jam nuts. You gonna say we're crazy, or are you a fan of the band no, at all? Or? I can actually. I mean, I was in high school when when they broke big. So, I mean, I I saw them on. I believe they toured on a couple of the Lollapaloozas. I went to the first two or three Lollapaloozas. I think they were on one of those a few times, and I saw them um, on their first ever headlining tour. Awesome. Um, at the Ritchie Coliseum at the University of Maryland. Uh, so that was pretty cool. They just, they, and I also saw them, um, there was a tour when, right when um, Blood Sugar Sex Magic came out, and the Chili Peppers had Smashing Pumpkins and Pearl Jam opening up for them. Wow, what, so a, that was, what a bill. That was, those were some pretty good shows, too. But I haven't seen them, and I'm dating myself here now, but geez, it was. I mean, that was probably 1992 was probably the last time I saw them. And I'm definitely still a fan. I respect the hell out of them. Um, you know, the stance they took against Ticketmaster, really the stance they took about against MTV, too, and pretty much, you know, shut it down from making music videos for, I don't know, was it a decade? All the way until 1998, yeah, from 10 to so, they didn't make any. Yeah, I, I have I have tremendous respect for them, and, uh, you know, I think of all those Seattle bands at the time, a lot of people at that time were kind of like, they were the not authentic one, you know what I mean? Or those right. were the guys, well, they, they weren't on Sub Pop, and... You know, they, they were, were they somewhat manufactured, and some of the guys are from Seattle, but there's other dudes from San Diego, um, and they're, they're obviously tremendous musicians. I mean, the, the Eddie, Eddie Vedder solo stuff is, is pretty amazing. I mean, the soundtrack he did... For Into um, the Wild, yeah. Yeah, for Into the Wild, I thought was, was unreal. Um, so, no, I, I, I applaud the hell out of them um, well, I think for all the stances that they've, they've taken and for, you know, the band that they've become. Yeah, I think they're the kind of thing, kind of like a fine wine. I think they've grown with age. And, you know, I've, my first show was in 1996, and you know, here we are in 2011. And uh, being at the Destination Weekend, I was lucky enough to see the impromptu Temple of the Dog reunion, you know, with Chris Cornell on stage. Yep. And, you know, you, you can tell that they're, kind of, they're the kind of people that they really respect just music and musicians in general. You know, and I've seen them play with... Bono for a song with uh, Neil, Neil Young, Young. and uh, you know it's just that's uh, it's a great time. So, who are some of your favorite bands? I know you talked a little bit a, a little bit about Damashek, but you're a punk fan and uh, yeah, uh, a I fan mean, of I, 80s I really music. Of, I mean, all genres of music. I mean, if if, if if I think there's something to be said for for all genres of music if it's done well, if it's smartly written. You know, if there's real craftsmanship or craft womanship involved, for lack of a better word, but. Um, I'm 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 really all over the map, but I mean I was kind of a, a punk fan as a kid and exposed to a lot of punk early on. Um, so I, I just you know that's kind of what I guess always sticks with me. But I mean I'm also a metalhead. I also love like country music, but what I consider to be real country music, like Sun Records stuff. I mean early Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, Hank Williams Sr. Um, you know that that kind of stuff is is so authentic. Merle Haggard. Um, and I think there's a real punk rock spirit in a lot of in a lot of different music as well, especially you know hip hop and and kind of like late '80s, early '90s hip hop when the social consciousness of it was really what it was all about, and the lyrics actually mattered, and you know it wasn't sort of this overly commercialized auto tune trap that pretty much gets peddled to teenagers these days. Um, but I mean, yeah, I mean, bands like Public Enemy, I mean, I saw them live a ton of times, and, and often with metal bands opening up for them, I and mean, I saw them with Anthrax a couple times, I saw them with Primus, um, I mean, but yeah, I, I mean, in terms of punk rock, Bad Brains, 
um, big time. The Clash, probably my favorite band of all time. Um, I love pretty much anything Johnny Thunders did, his solo stuff, and, and obviously the stuff with the dolls, um, the stuff he did with Richard Hell. I'm a huge Richard Hell fan. Um, you know, both his solo stuff and, and his stuff with the Voidoids. Um, you know, I, I don't know. I, th- I think if you were had me kind of like pick a certain time in music, I would say like 76 to 80. There were just so many amazing albums made and, and punk kind of spawning in the new wave. Um, you know, and then even kind of spawning REM and bands like that. I think if you follow kind of that spine from London 76 to like New York 77, 78 to like the rest of the world, you know, by 80, 81, 82. Um, yeah, I just, I just think there were so many seminal acts and bands that came out of that era. I think iTunes is dropping the ball. They need to get, uh, get you to make a celebrity playlist for them. How many songs <laughs> do you have on, the, on your iPod? Yeah, well, I, I don't know that I qualify as a celebrity, but I'm certainly a music fan. <laughs> well, I think people would kill us to listen to this show if we didn't talk about football. Um, my first question about football is, did it feel any different to you this weekend after the offseason that we had? Did this opening week feel any different to you? And what do you think ultimately was the effect on the games uh, after having this strange offseason yeah. that we had? I thought the quality of play was decidedly higher than I expected. If you would have asked me back in June, you know, what do you think week one's going to look like? I would have thought penalties galore, sloppy offenses, uh, shoddy special teams. I mean, instead we had amazing individual performances on special teams. We had quarterbacks. I mean, I don't know how you... you, you, you I mean, a guy like Philip Rivers, who has a pretty stellar day, wouldn't even be mentioned in the top five <laughs> quarterback outings of week one, probably. Um, I mean, there was a lot of yardage. Defenses were behind offenses, which I was surprised by. But I thought the quality of play was good. I mean, there were some games. Seattle, San Francisco was an ugly game. I mean, Oakland, 15 penalties. But but you know what? Oakland, only they, they, that's not unusual. I mean, I don't think that matters that it's week one coming out of the lockout and Oakland got penalized a ton. I mean, that could have been week eight. 2009 in Oakland probably would have got penalized a ton. So overall, I, I was I was impressed. Um, the one thing that did hold true that I thought would is the teams that didn't have an established head coach, that didn't have continuity, that were learning new terminologies, that were upheavals in the staffs, were going to be under the gun, and they already are. I mean, those teams are two and six. If you change your head coach from 2010 into 2011, um, you're two and six right now. And the only reason I think Hugh Jackson has a win, you know, it's because it was against John Fox, right. the Denver team that was in that same boat. So somebody had to win that one. Uh, those teams are going to struggle. Even the one that won San Francisco, I mean, Ted Ginn, if he doesn't have back-to-back returns, I mean, they were they were pretty much in the process of blowing, what, a, a two or three score lead at home to a really pitiful Seattle team, and then Ginn saved the day for him. You look at the, the score and you say, oh, they took care of business. Well, not really. Um, those teams are going to struggle. I mean, Cleveland, I, I, I thought they would have whacked Cincinnati. But a lot of it had to do with, I think, a rookie head coach and a quarterback in a new system and, you know, a team that had a little bit of expectations about them, and, and they just imploded. They, they, they looked like what I thought week one football would look like. Was there a result that surprised you any more than some of the other results? Like, were you shocked by Buffalo putting 41 no, on Kansas I, City? I, I picked Buffalo to win. I picked Buffalo to win big. I didn't know 41-7, but I, 
but I thought they would blow out the Chiefs. I saw a lot of the Chiefs in the preseason. Um, I had a bad vibe about them from the moment it got out that Charlie Weiss was leaving the building, and nothing that's happened there has been to the contrary. And then you add on the injuries on top of it. Um, I thought the Chiefs, the Seahawks, the Bears would be three teams that were in the playoffs last year that would take a pretty good tumble this year. And then the Bears, that surprised me. Chicago handling Atlanta that way surprised me. Cleveland lose. I really thought Cincinnati was a fairly horrible football team, and they were scrappy, and they found a way to win. Carlos Dunlap continues to generate quarterback pressure, even though they don't have anybody else in that roster really helping them out. Um, so, you know, that, that surprised me. Chicago surprised me. But Kansas City did, did not surprise me. They're a very easy team to defend. Todd Haley's wearing a lot of hats there probably more than, than he'd like at this point. Um, I, I don't I just I I don't believe in them, um, and I, I don't think they're gonna come close to the ten wins last year. I think uh I, I could actually see upheaval there either in the front office or in the coaching ranks by the end of the year. That's how bad I think it's gonna be. Hmm. Do you think that the NFC West is it possible that that's a worse could division worse. than it was last year? Yeah. Yeah. Could be worse. That's one of the things I did a column on Monday morning just off of, you know, five or six observations off of the weekend, and that was one that struck me immediately. I, I think 7-9 and nine will win it. Now, Arizona might be good enough. You know, Arizona might be good enough to to win 8 or 9, but I think the next team after them could easily have 6 wins. So on paper, theoretically, 7-9, and nine, I think, gets it done again. Um, and you know what, Arizona, maybe they don't win 8. They better win a lot of games in their division with their, their past, the state of their past defense right now. And it's awful hard to get better at corner on the fly and get better at safety on the fly. There's just not a lot of skill out there on the street right now. Not a lot of teams that would trade a corner. They obviously traded a corner to get a quarterback, and I think Kevin Cobb will win that division for him. But that division is worse. Um, and the bottom of the AFC West, I mean, I just think Denver and Kansas City are going to be pretty bad. Um, and I think San Diego will run away with that division. And Oakland, even if they win eight or nine games, I think, I think San Diego is going to win 12. How long are Minnesota Vikings fans going to have to put up with this ridiculous coaching staff? They only give Adrian Peterson the ball about 16 times. Percy Harvin runs the opening kickoff back, doesn't really touch the ball, barely again the rest of the game. Um, it seems like they've been fighting this forever. They had the lead for most of the day, end up blowing the game against San Diego, who hates to win games in September, and did yeah. their best to not win yesterday or Monday or Sunday. Excuse me. What what do, what do you make of Minnesota? You know, I, I that's a team that I thought was five or six win team, and then I watched them. I and mean, then I don't put too much stock on the preseason, but I I, I paid a little bit more attention to them. I said, you know what, uh, that that defense still has some guys over there who will make plays. They'll still be able to run the ball. I don't like their offensive line pass protecting, but they should be able to road grade a little bit. You still have AP, and you've got a motivated Donovan McNabb. Um, and for as bad as they they played in a lot of respects. They were in that game into the fourth quarter on the road against a team that a lot of people have pegged for the Super Bowl. Um, I think they could be a middle of the road team. I think they could, you know, win seven, eight games. Um, but yeah, they've got issues there. They don't. I don't know how they're going to vertically stretch the field. I don't. I don't. I mean, losing Sidney Rice is going to hurt. Um, you know, I think Donovan will be okay. He'll make some plays with his feet like he did Sunday. I, I mean, he's. That was just kind of a weird game. I mean, what, 15? They didn't have any. I mean, they only ran the ball 16 times by AP. Well, it's not like Donovan threw it 40 times. I think Donovan had 15 attempts. They ran, I think they had 39 or 40 offensive plays. You know, so they they were horrible on third down. Um, 
they couldn't sustain any sort of drives, and so they just they never got in a play calling rhythm. They never got in an offensive rhythm. They never got in an established an identity rhythm because they they were never running more than three plays off the script at any given time. If you would have told me that Pittsburgh was going to lose to Baltimore, I would have said, oh, "All right." But if you would have told me they were going to lose thirty-five to seven, I would have told me. you I were crazy. That before thirty-five-seven or th- whatever it was, yeah, yeah. What um, what went wrong there? Thirty-eight-seven, whatever the hell. Thirty-five-seven. Um, yeah, uh, I mean Pittsburgh got punched in the mouth, and, and yeah, they they're did. the last team in the league that you suspect to get manhandled that way. But they absolutely did. Um, ben Roethlisberger, who I thought was primed and still do think is primed to have an MVP type season. And, and put up some serious passing yards. He was off. Um, those games are usually tight. I mean, those games you can almost always figure 17, 14, 21, 20, 20, you know, something like that. Okay, um, this is the one that... Whoops, sorry. <laughs> NFL.com just starts playing videos on us sometimes. Oh, yeah, that, we're, we're notorious for that. Yeah, that 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 surprised me. Um I mean, you looked at it on paper and you said Baltimore's very vulnerable. A corner, they got Jimmy Smith a rookie starting, um, and then he goes out the first series of the game, and you've got Kerry Williams over there who's talent, you know, has some talent and, and showed well in camp, but he's relatively unproven, and you've got all this speed in Pittsburgh's wide receiving core. Um, I thought they'd exploit him downfield, and the other issue with Baltimore was the offensive line. Those guys had never played a meaningful snap together ever, those five that they got. when Once McKinney came in late, they weren't even sure two days before the game whether they'd start uh, Andre Girard or Matt Burke back at center. And they went out and beat the snot out of Pittsburgh physically. And Bryant McKinney had maybe the best game I've ever seen him have. And Vontae Leach was an absolute wrecking ball as a fullback. And they, were, they ran for 170 yards on the Pittsburgh Steelers, five yards in a tenth. And it wasn't just Ray Rice. Ricky Williams had a nice little day, too. Um, so, yeah, if, if they continue that, if Bryant McKinney, I mean, all he has to do is be decent at left tackle. If he's actually motivated and playing to his potential at left tackle. Now Orr is so much more comfortable on the right side. Even if Burke goes down and he's gimpy, you've got Gerard there, so they, they, they found some, some, someone to secure the inside of their, the interior of their offensive line. And now with a fullback who doesn't want to catch the ball, doesn't want to run the ball, just wants to run people over, I mean, if they re- rediscover that power running game, they're going to be an awful tough team to beat. And, and really, all that separated them from the Super Bowl the last three years is they can't get a game at home. They're a dominant home team, and they always come up a game short to Pittsburgh in the standings, and they have to go on the road. If they get a couple of home playoff games, that they could be Super Bowl champs. One thing that surprised me the most about the game, just one more question about it, is that I thought the strength of the Steelers team might be the linebackers. I mean, I'm not that surprised that the offensive line struggled, but I was really surprised at how poorly the linebackers played. Is you think that it was just one of those games where everything went wrong and nothing's going to look right and they should just dump it? Right. Or do you think that there should be some concern there? Uh, they're, they're an old defense, and I didn't put much stock in that, except even Troy doesn't look right to me. Troy, to me, still looked like the, the hobbling, closer to the hobbling Troy of the end of last season, you know, than the dynamic Troy at the start of last season. Uh, Harrison's back is not right, and I know they're downplaying it, but he, he, he ain't right, and he, he hasn't been right, and I don't know if that's something that gets better or worse through the course of a season, or if at some point they rest him, but he, he's not right, and Farrier's not any younger. Um, the other two... Timmons and Woodley are studs, and, and they're just entering their prime. But I wonder if somebody like Worlds starts getting more reps 
it, you know, within their base defense as the season goes on, and if they try to to get a little younger there on the fly. Um, but but they're they're a great team. They're a team that will be in the Super Bowl equation. You know, they've still got Casey Hampton. They Ziggy Hood is is an emerging star. You know, they've Kiesel and Smith though. Are we'll see how they hold up on the edges. I mean, those are guys who've been injured a lot the last couple of years and. That's going to be tough. And, and their offensive line, too, I mean, it's no great shakes, and now they lose Willie Colon again for the season. Um, we'll see. Um, but it, it, it didn't it, – I guess if, I, if I'm looking for nits to pick, I'm with you. They're old on defense, particularly at a couple of key spots at linebacker. The offensive line is eh and already injured. <laughs> and if you look at Pittsburgh historically, at least not their dynasty years, but since – when they make get to the Super Bowl, they often struggle the next year for whatever reason. I mean, we've seen them a couple of times, right, win a Super Bowl and miss the playoffs the next year. So I don't know if that means anything or not, but if you're making a case against them, that's how I'd build it. It's been a while since New England has won a Super Bowl, but you know what? This season, I've kind of felt this brewing a little bit. They really put the hammer down on a couple teams in the preseason. They did not lose into Detroit, but I kind of just felt this coming, this kind of... I don't know, uh, just the way that they play always till the last minute, you know, and the way they bury teams and the way that when they gotcha, it seems like they know how to step on the throat better than anyone in the, in the league. Is this the year maybe that New England gets back to being, I know they had a great record last season, but didn't put it together in the playoffs. Are they ready to really, really kind of dominate the AFC again? I don't know about dominate the AFC. I mean, well, I mean, what they they I mean, they kind of did last year if you look at the regular season standings. Right. But then in the playoffs, it's something else, and and they've matched up um, a couple of years in the playoffs against very physical football teams, and and Salton. Baltimore blew them out at home. Um, they obviously then the Jets, you know, who Rex Ryan. I mean, it's basically the same mo. And they out-physical them and, and kind of blew them out in certain respects this past year. So there's certain matchups that are not good for them. Um, and I, their defense, I mean, I don't know that you can look at them and say they're the most complete team in the league. They may ultimately be the best team in the league, but there's still issues about their defense. Um, I think I, over time it will get better. I love the addition of Albert Hainsworth. Um, but, you know, Ty Warren's not there anymore. They, they suffered some injury blows. A lot of new faces. I mean, Andre Carter, I like that signing as well, but he came in late. He's still picking things up. Um, I think they'll get better. But then, you know, a lot of upheaval in the back end, too. I mean, they, they cut both their starting safeties only a couple of weeks ago. So that'll take some time. But, yeah, will they win 12, 13 games and, and, and go in as a top seed? I think absolutely. I think they'll win that division. I think they'll score a ton of points and maybe set some records. But, you know, the playoffs are a little bit of a different different story, and if they can't hold up defensively, and if they can't be a little more physical in the run game, then they could be susceptible to another one and out. The sportscasters are here with Jason Lackenfora from the NFL Network. He's all over the place there with uh, Total Access, and he's a great follow on Twitter. You can follow him at Jason, L-A-C-A-N-F-O-R-A. A few more questions. You mentioned the AFC East, and I saw that you wrote today that the Dolphins had four running backs in to take a look, and uh, maybe Brian Westbrook indicated on Twitter that he probably wouldn't be the guy, that, or he didn't think so anyway. 
is it that the Dolphins overestimated what they had in Daniel Thomas? Because they had to have known what they had in Reggie Bush. I mean, he is what well, that's the he whole is, problem, right? Though, is, 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 it's hard to know what you have when you draft them in a black hole, right? It's a void, and then by the time they get in your building, you're two weeks away from playing preseason games. So it, it, that, that part is tough. Um, but there's certainly issues with him in pass protection. There's issues with him in his, how he was running the ball. Um, there were issues with him and his durability. Um, we saw with Ryan Matthews a year ago, it was taken much higher, but sort of a similar boat. That, that doesn't always bode well for, for rookie running backs when those are the kind of issues you have. Um, they weren't enamored with Larry Johnson, but they had to kind of bring him back because Thomas was nicked, nicked up. They didn't know whether he'd play in that game or not. Um, so, yeah, they've been looking. I mean, look, they, they looked at Tiki Barber, a while, you know, what, uh, five or six weeks ago, and they've been auditioning running backs with some regularity there. They looked at Clinton Portis a while back. Um, they haven't found anybody that they, they love yet. But, yeah, they got some issues. I mean, Reggie Bush, what exactly is he? I know they, they're thinking maybe he could carry the ball 15 times, 18 times a game. I don't know if they still think that now, coming off last night. Um, so, yeah, they, they worked out uh, Julius Jones. Who was it? It was Julius Jones, Thomas Clayton, Dimitri Nance, and Brian Westbrook. Ideally, they want a bigger back, someone in that, uh, you know, someone who's more in the in mold the of Larry Johnson, kind of maybe just not Larry Johnson per se. Um, so we'll see where that goes. I expect they'll continue to look at running backs. They are a little unsettled there. Um, Thomas, you know, he, he may progress and get better. Um, but if you can't, I mean, pass protection really is the big thing with these young backs. And if you don't know the scheme inside and out, and if you're worried that this running back is going to get your quarterback killed, then you're generally going to find ways not to have that running back on the field. All right, two more things before we let you go. One, we kind of glassed over it. We are in Buffalo, New York, and uh, the Bills are one of those teams that people uh, really kind of, I think, underestimated a little bit in, in, in the preseason. Not that they're going to be a playoff team, I don't think, but I don't think they're going to be sucking for luck either, so to speak. Uh, where do you kind of assess the Bills right now and kind of the rebuilding with Buddy Nix and the new coaching staff here in their second year? And what do you think the ceiling is for the Bills as people yeah. tend to get up pretty excited around here quick? Yeah, yeah, I think it's tough. I mean, the problem, the biggest problem the Bills have is geography. And it's not even really so much, well, it's, it's geography and it's the way the divisions are set up. To be that much of a small market team in that big of a big market division is tough. And when you look at the resources of those other teams, um, two of them have modern state-of-the-art stadiums. The one that doesn't, you know, is still in a big market in Miami um, where you've got an owner in Stephen Ross who's going to be able to do some things financially and bring in, you know, minority owners who are celebrities and all that stuff. Um, you know, that, that's, that, you know, the Buffalo Bills are more of a mom and shop. They're going to have to. The life, their lifeblood is going to have to be through the draft. Um, that's that's just reality, and and they have not been very good in the draft. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, then I say their ceiling is still at best a mediocre team. If C.J. Spiller's not a player, Aaron Maben's not a player. He's gone. Um, you know, you guys can go down the list. Yep. You're not. I mean, you can't. The Buffalo Bills can never strike out on a first round pick. They can't. You know. Um, I don't, and I certainly don't think they did this time around. I think you know Kyle Williams and Marcel Darius. Now, now you got a couple of, you know, SHIT kickers in the middle who are going to change the identity of your team. Absolutely, and, and kind of already are. Um, 
you know, I love Fred Jackson. You know, I, I think they found some options there at tight end. I think Fitzpatrick is, is for, for the system that Chan's running is good enough. And I actually don't mind Tyler Figpen backing him up. I like that signing a lot. Um, so, yeah, they're headed. And, I, I, you know, I think comparing them to where they were two years ago, they've certainly made strides. But I don't know that I'm ready to put them in any kind of – I mean, even if they beat the Raiders this week. You know, to me, they're a team that, that – at best goes 500, and if they go 500, that's an accomplishment. Um, but they still got have holes there. You know, I, I think they need to find some playmakers in, in, at linebacker. They need to keep some guys in their secondary healthy and, and get some continuity going there. Um, I think the defensive line could be the strength of that team for sure. Um, you know, but some of these offensive linemen they've drafted in recent years, it, it's going to be put up for shut-up time for them as well. Um, so I... I just I like how that the one thing I'll say about them is they they they're playing hard for Chan and I, I wasn't sure how that head coaching move would go um, and I still don't know long term if 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 that's necessarily going to you know be the the move that puts the Bills back over the top if they get back over the top um, but they play hard for him and and they're they're a gutsy group um, and I think you have to applaud them for that because for a while that really looked like a listless franchise. I think the problem with the Bills has been for a while that they can never decide if they're rebuilding or uh, if they're really going to go for it. And they always just kind of middled. Like they've done strange things like the T.O. signing. And yeah. uh, when Jerron was there, they went 7-9. and nine, And in the first season they did that, that's okay, that's an improvement. But it never improved beyond that. And that's, as a Bills fan, I think that I looked at the schedule this year and I thought people underestimated him in preseason power rankings. And I was almost disappointed by that because – they're not going to be a two-win team, which means they're probably not going to get the quarterback. People picked them at two wins, really? Well, I saw they like were they were 31 on, on the I think ESPN, ESPN maybe. Yeah. Uh, Jesus. Yeah, so I looked at That's the schedule. I was saying about them a year ago, but not. <laughs> <laughs> but not. Yeah, I mean, to me, they're a team that, that you know, is, is somewhere between six and eight wins. That's where um, I had them, too. And now, is that a good thing for the future of the team, or would it be better if they just totally blew it up and then get, got a quarterback and went for it from there? Well, tough yeah, one. I mean, that's, that's, <laughs> that's going to be interesting because obviously if they thought. Right, because if they win seven they games, they're going to pick at 14. Away, they'd have done it this year, you know? Right. Um, and who knows? If, if, if Cam's sitting there where they're picking, I, I still think they take Cam. Um, but obviously hmm. Cam didn't end up right. sitting, sitting there for him. Um, you know, it's interesting. I, I, there's only going to be so many teams that are in this Andrew Luck sweepstakes, and I don't mean – in terms of where they necessarily finish in the standings, but that need a quarterback, even need a quarterback to the point where you know what I mean. Even if they're a middle of the road team, they can move up eight, ten spots and, and get them. I mean, I think there's really only going to be five or six teams in that mix, um, and certainly under this new rookie uh, payment structure, works for them. It's it's it, yeah. I mean, he's going to be a bargain. He's going to be an absolute steal. I mean, you're going to look at his contract. And compare it to Sam Bradford's and say, my goodness, I mean, this kid could be better than Sam Bradford, and we're going to get him, you know, at least for the first five years at a bargain basement price. I mean, in the fifth year, you're paying him the franchise tag, but again, right. you average those five years out, and it's it's a bargain basement price. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's something they're going to have to consider. Um, I, you know, and in a way, with all the warts on these quarterbacks this year, I, I, I you know, sitting it out kind of makes some sense, but there, there might be a couple of them. I mean, that kid from USC, by the end of the year, people might be talking about similar to a luck. So there could be two or three kids in this draft, and maybe they decide, 
next year is the time to pull that trigger. Um, because, you know, even Fitzpatrick, I mean, he's not necessarily a spring chicken. So, I mean, I don't know that you're going to pencil him in as your guy for the next 10 years. Right. So that, that'll that be interesting, and I think that'll play out, you know, in, in the wash and, and, you know, how he performs and, and how they stabilize things as an offense. Um, you know, I, you, the good thing that they had going for him is you, you weren't in the position where you necessarily had to make a decision on a guy long term. You know, it wasn't like Seattle with Hasselbeck where you're sitting there thinking, well, if, if we let him go, you know what I mean, if we don't sign him over the logout, then he's gone. And if he's gone, are we going to have anything better than him? Not that we necessarily even like him so much anymore. I mean, they're, they're obviously comfortable with Ryan. Um, I think you're going to have to live with some of the mistakes and, and some of the things that come along with it. Um, but again, for the team they are right now, um, and, 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 you know, sort of all the realities of, of their market and, and et cetera, I, I think you could do a lot worse than Fitzpatrick. Right. Yeah, and who knows? Maybe, with, like you said, uh, there's a USC quarterback this year, Landry Jones at Oklahoma. I think the kid in Baylor has a lot of upside, so... Uh, maybe they'll find someone. Absolute last thing. I thought Thursday night was the greatest opening night game I've ever seen. Uh, I thought the Saints and the Packers were two heavyweights. Just The Packers played incredible in the first quarter. I thought the Saints played incredible in the third quarter. You think those are the two best teams in the uh, NFC? And do you think we're headed towards um, uh, another battle in January? And uh, Or do you think that the Saints maybe aren't good enough at defense? You know, I think they'll they'll work some things out. Um, I, I like the acquisition of Abreu Franklin and Sean Rogers, and I think that will change uh, some of the dynamics for them on defense, and it will make them more stout against the run, and it'll make them a, a, present some different looks and, and things that Greg Williams can do. Um, so yeah, I picked those two teams as to be in the NFC Championship game, and I still think there's a legitimate chance that they will. I mean, that's a tough scenario there. I, mean, I thought the Saints would win that game, and they almost won that game. You know, and let's not forget, I mean, you're going to Green Bay, first game of the year, they're, they're coming off a Super Bowl win. That's a tough situation. And um, the fumble in the first quarter by Colston yeah. didn't help. Yeah. So that put them I mean, 14 down. It kind down. of felt like it wasn't their night, yet they still found a way to get back in that thing to the point where they almost pulled it out. So, yeah, I, I, I think the Saints are a formidable team. And, and again, it, that, like I mentioned, Baltimore at home, we saw last year the Saints having to go to Seattle and all that. Tough. Right. If the Saints win that division and they get a couple of home playoff games, it's a totally different scenario. You know, that, then I think you're, you're looking at them in this, going to the Super Bowl. Okay, sorry, one, so, more, one more quick question. Is uh, Kerry Collins the quarterback of the Colts, say, a month from now, or does he hold that spot until Peyton comes back? I don't think Peyton's coming back. So, I mean, you're talking about now Kerry playing a full season, and no, I don't think that happens. I mean, at a certain point, you'd turn it over to Curtis Painter if it's as abysmal as it looks like it could be. Um, Or you go out and sign somebody else. Although they gave Kerry some legitimate money now and a little amount of retirement. What about about Palmer? Have they any... Thoughts about maybe talking to Cincinnati, seeing if they no. want to? No. I mean, I think, look, I mean, Bill Polian always has a maybe even a little bit of an inflated sense about how good his team is. I mean, I, I think they tend to think most years they have the greatest talent in the league, and I don't necessarily would, would agree with that. I think Baton covers up a whole lot of warts for them um, and has allowed them to do things that they couldn't ordinarily do as an organization. But I think even they will see the reality of it, these results mount that, What's Carson going to do? You know what I mean? Carson right, still right. not Peyton. 
Um, and then you, what do you, I mean, this is a team that could be looking at drafting Andrew Luck. So now I'm going to go get Carson Palmer. First of all, I don't think they couldn't afford Car- Carson Palmer is going to cost $11.5 million against yeah, the cap. Yeah. They don't have anywhere near that cap room. So I, I don't think it's feasible in a lot of respects. And, and Mike Brown's not not trading him, and he's certainly not trading him in the Indianapolis well, Not at Colts. this point. So, he, you know, he's not trading him. They couldn't afford him right now. And they're going to scout. They, they almost drafted a quarterback last year. And I would have been stunned that they did it in the first round, and a lot of people would have. But they, they, had, they knew that, that Peyton's neck. I mean, they didn't know everything they know about it now, but they certainly still knew it could be an issue. So they, were, they spent a lot of time with quarterbacks last year, and they'll spend even more this year, and they'll probably draft one. Um, and they'll draft one with an eye towards him playing, and you know, by the time Manning's contract ends, if not sooner, based on his health. So Carson Palmer would just muddle that equation. And, right. and they think Peyton will be back, and Peyton probably will be back, but Peyton may not be the same Peyton when he comes back. And Peyton, once he gets hit a few times, once he comes back, might really not be the same Peyton anymore. So there's a whole lot of uncertainty there, and the best way to address it is to be proactive about it and get a young quarterback in there who you think could be a franchise quarterback. And you know Carson really wouldn't solve their problems. I mean, the teams who were interested in Carson prior to the lockout and who were sniffing around, you know, Seattle was really interested. Arizona was really interested. Well, Arizona's out of that market now. Seattle could still conceivably be in it, but they may very well. I mean, they're going to be a bad football team. They they may very well have Andrew Luck fall right. right to them. Unbelievable. Jason, thank you very much for staying up late with us tonight. Thanks for giving us so much time. We can't thank you enough. Jason Lackenfora, NFL Network. Find him on Total Access. It's a great follow on Twitter, at Jason Lackenfora. Thank you very, very, very much. Hopefully we can do it again sometime. My pleasure, guys. Thank Thank you. you. It's time for a new segment we've created called Five on Fantasy. With the first pick, Adrian Peterson, Drew Brees, Stephen Jackson, Miles Austin, Leonet Ocho Cinco, TJ Hushmanzada. I once tricked my brother Greg into picking Roy Williams about nine rounds after he had actually been selected. <laughs> I don't care. I'm just trying to win me a fantasy football league. Thank you very much to the great Jason Lockenfora, his second appearance on the show. We can't thank him enough. He was very flexible with us. Originally, he didn't think Tuesday would work out. He uh, was hoping to do Wednesday. Of course, we kind of got other stuff going on Wednesdays, so he was very, very kind. Can't thank him enough. Awesome spot, huh? Yeah. Jason Lockenfora, unbelievable. Okay, five on fantasy today. We got some stuff planned, but since we were both defeated in the league that we created for our listeners on nfl.com kind of we created the league in tribute to the great michael fabiano who's also from the nfl network joining us and we've given them this block of time and said we'll be recording five on fantasy during it you're more than welcome to call in and basically hijack the show yep that's the promise we made to them so we're gonna just do our thing we have skype on if they call in to hijack well they call in to hijack. So be it. Yeah, yeah that's uh, that's what we agreed to. But Don has some stuff planned, so uh, kick us off. All right. First of all, it was a high-scoring week in general. Uh, I lost in some leagues where I put up some pretty good numbers. But the first thing we'll do is we'll get to some winners and losers. I broke it down into studs and surprises for my winners. The studs, uh, I think obviously Tom Brady. The studs are going to be guys that kind of justified their draft position and even outplayed it. Tom Brady throws for 517 yards and four TDs. He did have one pick, but 
I'll, I mean, anyone will take that game every day of the week. And Ray Rice. Ray Rice, many leagues, probably the third, second overall pick. Put up 107 yards, a touchdown, and uh, had four receptions for 42 yards and a touchdown. In the re- I mean, there were guys that put up bigger numbers than Rice, but he did it against the Pittsburgh Steelers, and I heard a lot of people that made some crazy predictions, like Willis McGay, he would outscore Ray Rice week one, things of that nature. So Ray Rice uh, proving why he was a top three pick. My surprises this week, uh, not surprisingly, Cam Newton is a, wow. one of my surprises. Unbelievable. 422 yards, two TDs, a pick, and he added 18 rushing yards and a TD. And maybe even slightly more surprising is Chad Henney, who almost put up identical numbers, 416 yards, two TDs, a pick, 59 yards rushing and a TD. So he had a little more of the rushing yards. Those guys are obviously surprises in that nobody probably even had him in their lineup. If you did, good on you, I guess. But uh, my last surprise was uh, Tolbert from San Diego. Didn't put up huge, huge yardage numbers. He had about 35 yards rushing. In a TD and 58 yards on nine catches and two TDs. So we had three TDs total. I read somebody uh, reading a different fantasy site saying something along the lines of, that was a nice game for him, but that's the ceiling. Yeah, no kidding. That would be like Adrian Peterson's ceiling as far as, not the yardage necessarily, but nobody's going to go out there and score three three TDs. As a side note, I said I'm not buying what Newton and Henny did. Uh, they're going to have to show me it a little bit more. I am kind of buying what Tolbert did. I think asking for 93 combined yards for him isn't a ton, and he's clearly, clearly the goal line guy. He had the same exact number of carries as Matthews. Matthews had much more yardage. Uh, I think he probably had like 150 combined yards. He also had more catches than Matthews. So I think both Tolbert and Matthews can have some fantasy value there, but with Tolbert probably ending up with – five or six more TDs than Matthews has. And my loser, I only had one because I felt I only need one. Actually, I had an honorable mention for my surprises because I couldn't decide whether to put him in the studs or the surprise category, but Steve Smith was the receiver of the week. I had 178 yards and two TDs. I imagine most people didn't start him, though. He wasn't drafted all that highly this year. He was probably drafted as your fourth or maybe at best your third receiver, but he had a huge day. And my loser was... uh, Chris Johnson, I kind of said it in my preview blog that he better come play now because he sat out. You don't want to look slow or you don't want to get injured. And he looked bad against a team that shouldn't have given him too, too much trouble. He ended up with 49 total yards. Maybe he saved your day a little bit in a PPR league because he did have six catches. But 10 points in a PPR league isn't going to catch it, isn't going to cut it from Chris Johnson. All right, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be honest with everyone, and I'm going to tell you that last week we had some starts and some sits, <laughs> and we also had some sleepers if you hadn't done a draft. And I want to, just for full disclosure, I'm going to say where we were right and where we were wrong. First off, we mentioned that if you still had a draft, there were some potential sleepers out there. One of them was Ben Tate, we that mentioned. Was, that looked right. We did great there. Ben yep. Tate, and on top of it all, uh, Derek Ward, who was kind of there, is kind of injured as well. A little bit, yeah. So if Ward or Foster don't play, and even if Ward plays, but especially Foster, I think Ben Tate's a guy that can can play a bit. And uh, he did very well in um, – I'm going to have to get back to you let you know exactly how many points he scored in NFL Standard Leagues, but he did well. Also, I mentioned Kenny, Kenny Britt. Kenny Britt was awesome. 
Yeah. Uh, he had 33.6 points in uh, NFL.com standard leagues. Played awesome. That was another one we mentioned. And we also mentioned uh, Stevie Johnson uh, as someone to, to draft if maybe you were a little scared of Reggie Wayne. Stevie Johnson did well. He had a touchdown, had some yards, had some catches. One that so far didn't quite work out was Lance Kendricks. Kind of a slow day. He is a rookie, though. Sam Bradford did get beat up a little bit. They did have tough competition against the Eagles. So that's one that maybe the book's still out on. Right. We had three starts last week. Quarterback was Josh Freeman. Uh, he started off slow, but I think he rebounded a little bit towards the end of the game because they were behind. Uh, he finished like 270-some-odd yards. 270-some yards. Yeah, he, he had a touchdown. He had a pick. A couple picks, so he yeah. scored 14 points or so, 15 points. Yeah, the weird thing is that would be an average day probably most weeks, but because the just quarterbacks exploded throughout the league, so he oh, probably no, finished he 37 like, for Brady, 37 for Henny, 33 for Newton, yeah, 27 or 32 for Breeze, 27 Stafford for Rogers, nice Stafford day. at 25, Vic at 25, Ryan Fitzpatrick at 24. So, uh, you know, the Freeman call, all right, but you probably would have been better off if you started. Someone like Fitzpatrick or Stafford, right? Who is maybe a guy kind of outside the radar that maybe you considered starting if you didn't. And we did say to start him over Eli Manning, and they basically had the exact same. They week. pushed, yeah. That was a push. I have starts and sits this week too. I'm not sure if you have. Okay, any, yeah, but, uh, we'll get to that for sure. Hold on, I got okay. a couple more guys to go. Over. Sure. Uh, running back, uh, we said Peyton Hillis he disappointed me. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Peyton Hillis didn't. Quite do what I thought. Again, he was around the 14-point range, uh, probably because he had six catches for 30 yards. Uh, he did have uh, 57 yards rushing, so uh, 87 total yards, six catches, no touchdowns. If he gets in the end zone, it's, it's a great a decent day. Lead. Right, yeah. Uh, but since he didn't, kind of hurts a little bit. Again, he's not anyone I think you need to panic about. He's probably going to score about where you drafted him. He slipped a little bit, and I think justifiably so. I don't think he's going to be as good as he was last year. But, you know, nothing to worry about. And my other, my other start was probably my best call, and nobody wanted to listen to me about this. Uh, but Reggie Wayne is still yeah. going to catch passes. Look at the worst quarterback in the league still throws for about 100 yards a week, right? And somebody's got to catch those balls. And Kerry Collins isn't going to be the worst quarterback in the league. Right. And if the Colts are going to spend as much time down as it looks like they might, Reggie Wayne's going to be a great player all year. He had seven catches, 106 yards, at a TD, 26 points in a PPR league. So great day. Don't be afraid of Reggie Wayne. Not to totally state the obvious either, but that's got to be their worst week of the year. Um, they're going to have – they know Peyton's out now. It was kind of questionable a little bit all week last week. So it's, it's another full week with uh, Kerry Collins in the first-team offense. I can't expect them to be worse than that. So, like you said, Wayne will probably play about the way he played, and I imagine Clark's numbers will come up. The only guys I would be a little bit worried about are like a die and the running backs in general, because it's it seems like at the team that's gonna they're gonna dare people people are gonna dare Kerry Collins to throw. Um, the one guy I didn't mention who also could have been on my losers was Lavera Blunt. He was uh, lousy, and I am a little bit worried. Not. I'm not going to go overboard with worry, but I think I have a couple leagues where I might have Starks as a backup, where I might start Starks over Blunt. My worry is Ernest Graham got a lot, was in on almost all the receiving downs, and uh, that's that's cause for concern, especially when Blunt only r- rushed for like 15 yards. Or well, something. the one problem with Blunt, 
the one thing that might be holding him back is that as a rookie or second-year guy, the pass protection. you got to worry about picking up blitzes on pass protection. And if he's still struggling with that, Ernest Graham's a veteran that they can bring in. They can count on him to pick up a blitz. And that might make him a little bit more effective than we had thought. All right, I've got a couple start sits and a couple waiver pickups. What do you want to get to first? Uh, I was uh, thinking waiver pickups too, so let's do that. Okay, uh, a few of the waiver pickups I have. I think at this point I would like to first put out there, I, I'm in six leagues. I went through all my leagues. And the ones I lost in are especially t- – I went like four and two or something, so I can't complain about that. But I always – when I, after a loss, I always want to – run to my keyboard and see who could I who could I have uh, picked up on the waiver wire who would have helped me don't overreact it's one week um, maybe there's a gem or two in the waiver wire that are going to make you better uh, Steve and I are in that expert league where there's 16 teams and there's clear spots where we can get better hey we won that one too didn't we I don't think we did I think we, we actually ended up losing damn it but uh don't don't go crazy that said a few guys out there I have Devery Henderson and Robert Meacham chances are one of them was drafted in your draft, maybe not both. The idea there is more is banged up, and I imagine he's going to play next week because he seemed close. Yeah, on I think Thursday. Moore will play, but Colston's going to be out a month. At but Moore is at least coming off an injury, and Colston is going to be at least out a month. And that offense looks like it's going to score at will. And I want anybody that's going to play consistently on it. And it seems like both of them will. So those are two of my guys. Uh, Cadillac Williams, if you are Steven Jackson owner especially, he'd be a nice one or two-week start, depending on how long Jackson will be out. My last one is Jordy Nelson. Uh, He's another guy that may have been drafted for you, but if not, just another offense that I want a guy in it, and he appears to be the favorite over uh, the third guy, James Jones. What are your thoughts on Randall Cobb there? Huh, I don't know. I honestly had never even heard of him before that day, and he definitely made an impact. If your league gives points for kick returns, too, then definitely he's worth Same, a flyer. And then that's Ted Ginn. We got Ted a Ginn Jr. Ginn Jr. there, too. Right. If it's a league like Mac- Michael Fabiano prefers, where you get some points for kickoff returns and kickoff touchdowns. And yeah, they're both, they're both worth a look. I'm not dropping anybody. I nec- that's the tough part. I have guys on my uh, – Because Ted, my- Ted Ginn didn't catch a pass. Right. So his day was completely based on his kick return. Returns. But there's other guys. Uh, I have guys. Set. He only had like, what scares me out of a guy like that is I looked three at catches. his stats. It's only three catches. Right. Guys that are going to get all their points on one or two plays. That's maybe Mike Wallace like a year or two ago when you're going to get three catches and 100 yards in a TD or maybe three catches for 20 yards from him. I'd probably rather have the guys I drafted still. That's why I drafted them. But. That, that's the one thing I was going to say, too, is I have guys like Stephen Ridley and like uh, Roy Halu kind of stashed on my bench. I'm not ready to give up on them quite yet for a guy like Ted Ginn or Cobb. Gotcha. That's all I got for waivers. Like I said, it's too early. Don't go nuts. Right, yeah. Don't don't go nuts at all. Okay, start sets. Um, again, the starts, are, we're looking for non-obvious starts, and maybe my first one is an obvious start, but he was probably drafted as your backup. That's Matt Stafford. Uh, he looked every bit the part. Everyone has said, uh, what is Matt Stafford until he gets injured? Uh, but if he, when he's not injured, he's going to be my guy. I'm starting him in the league over Schaub, although I do also like Schaub this week to bounce back a little bit. And uh, that's a great QB one. Uh, maybe a running back one that, I don't know, if uh, if he's immediately on your radar or not. But I love the San Diego running backs. 
Yeah. You know, I really like Ryan Matthews. He's a, a factor in the passing game. Uh, he was a decent runner. And they were behind all game. So they never really got the chance to play ahead, really establish the running game. Tolbert had a great day. I would start either of those guys. I agree. I'm not... I'm not afraid to start Tolbert because of Matthews, and I'm probably not afraid no. to start Matthews because of Tolbert. I think they're both going to be big factors. I think Matthews and got tackled I'm, at the two-yard line once or twice, too. So if he takes those long ones in, then he has a huge day instead. Yeah, so I think I'm not afraid of either of those guys, and I'm willing to plug either of them in. The running back I had this week as a, maybe a non-obvious start was uh, Peyton Hillis. I know he's drafted probably in the second or third round, so maybe that seems like an obvious start, but it's just kind of a – don't overreact to what happened. He plays Indy this week, and Indy looked terrible. Uh, he'll get his chances for sure. All right, I have a wide receiver for you. It's Robert Meacham. If you're trying to decide which of the Saints' wide receivers to start, maybe you have Colston and you want to pick up there, and you're like, okay, should it be Henderson? Should it be Moore? Should it be Meacham? It's such a tough decision, and I could easily be wrong about this, but – as someone who covers the team, as someone who follows the team, <laughs> as someone who lives and breathes and dies by the way the team plays, I like Meacham. He was a first-round pick. He's a guy that they baby. They gave him a red shirt year in the league. They've brought him along. They've brought him along. He had five catches. He had a drop, so he had six targets. Um, he had 70 yards. He had a touchdown. He runs great deep routes. Drew Brees loves to throw the Loves to throw these balls that are on like kind of these double moves where he counts on the offensive line to give him a little extra time. I like him a tad bit more than Henderson. I know that Meacham had the drop last week, not Henderson, but Henderson has a case of the drops. I was going to ask that because uh, I don't obviously follow them nearly as close as you do, but from watching, the, it was the only game on Thursday, obviously, so I watched the whole thing. Even the balls Henderson seems to catch, he seems to catch with his body. He seems to never – they never stick to his hands, it doesn't seem like. He he's, seems to have scary. trouble with it. He scares you. And that's his regular – And that's him. Okay. Yeah, so I, I like me, I'll like. i give Meacham the edge. Uh, the wide receiver I had this week is maybe, again, I'm thinking of a guy that underperformed last week. I like guys that underperform for good teams to rebound. Like, I like all the Steelers this week. Obviously, it helps they're playing Seattle, but I don't want to – don't overreact on any of the uh, – Steelers. Yes, but, Mendenhall, Wallace, Roethlisberger, get him in there. But the wide receiver I specifically uh, singled out was Ocho Cinco. We kind of had him pegged maybe a, as a sleeper uh, last week. I know in the past people have said that Brady will try to get his new guys acclimated early. I think Brady's a good enough quarterback where he can kind of make Ocho Cinco have a good game this week. And it's their home opener. It's his first time playing in their stadium. So I think Brady looks to give him a good game, and I think he. there's no way Brady throws for anything close to 300, 400 yards again, and he comes up with only one catch. I have a super interesting guy. He's way off the board. He's probably only for deep leagues, but he's someone to keep an eye on, and that's Dexter McCluster. Yeah. He's probably undrafted in a lot of leagues. He could probably – there's probably some leagues that where they'll let you start him as a wide receiver. There's probably some where he's a running back. NFL.com right now is counting him as a receiver. He had 42 yards rushing. He had five catches. He had 92 yards in the kicking game, if that counts for you at all. Um, he's kind of a guy maybe in a deeper league, but he's someone to keep an eye on. I should remember this, but I think he also fumbled the opening kickoff, which pretty much set the tone for the game. So if you heavily penalize fumbles, he might not be the highest on your list. But, yeah, he's man, he's a fun – every time he touches the ball, he's a scary guy. Yeah, all that was in a blowout too. Right. You know, so – 
again, not a chance really to establish the running game. He still had 45 yards rushing. He caught five passes. He's a real tweener. He's kind of a little bit smaller, but he's obviously got the speed yeah, if you're in a deep and league. the skill. He's someone just to keep, keep him on your radar. Maybe don't pick him up this week. Um, maybe someone... Well, most people listen to the show, so everyone's going to hear this. But, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe there's some people in your league who, who won't overreact and grab, and you can kind of just monitor them for a week or two. Okay, my sits for this week. And, again, some of these guys, they're the non-obvious sits, so I don't expect you to necessarily actually sit these guys. But temper expectations, again, on my list this week is Eli Manning. Um, he ended up having an okay day, like we said, about the same as Freeman. I, I kind of like St. Louis in their defense, and I expect them to give him just as much trouble. Um, two other guys, obviously, I mentioned earlier, Henny and Newton. Don't expect what they did last week. I know that's stating the obvious, but make them show it to you one more time before you plug them into your starting lineup. All right, I got a couple sits for you. Um, Drew Brees and Aaron Rodgers, those guys are garbage. <laughs> no, I'm just... I'm kidding. Do you want me to go through my other ones? Sure, go ahead. Okay, my running back. This is the very non-obvious one, and again, you're going to start him. But Chris Johnson has me slightly worried, especially after a pretty much garbage performance now playing Baltimore, who looks fired up. Uh, Maybe Baltimore is going to let down a little bit after beating their big rival in Pittsburgh. But... They don't really have to. They can't be too scared of uh, Hasselbeck, so they're going to do whatever they can to stop Chris Johnson. So I'm, I'm starting him this week, but I'm not loving it. And my last one is Steve Smith again. He's just he's not going to do it again. Uh, the same reason I don't trust Newton, and he's playing Green Bay. The only thing I think Smith is going to have going for him is I think they could be down by a boatload early. Although Charles Woodson is going to be covering him. <laughs> Although, I mean, Colston did okay against Woodson, but right. not great. Right. Uh, I have a sit. He didn't face any suspension, by the way, did he? No. Fine? Probably. Probably got a fine. Darren Sproles, sit him. He had a, he had a great debut, don't get me wrong. Yeah. And maybe if you're in a PPR and he's your flex, maybe still start him. Right. But he only had seven yards rushing. He's probably not going <laughs> to be no. Probably not gonna be a factor at all in the rushing game. Okay, if kickoff returns and punt returns don't help you, you're looking at a guy who's going to catch four, five, six balls and go for about 30, 40, 50, 60 yards. So don't overreact to his great start in New Orleans. I think he's going to have some good games, but I think he's going to have some bad games. They play the Bears, whose defense looked great against Atlanta last week. Yeah, I was shocked. So another challenge for the Saints. And uh, if I'm going to sit anybody, it's going to be Darren Sproles just because I think he played above expectations last week as opposed to being at expectation or below. Like we said, we were kind of talking back and forth uh, on Twitter. It's going to be hard to pick the right saint every week probably. I mean, Sproles probably got the benefit of being in that shootout of a game, whereas most weeks they probably want to pound Ingram a little more and, like you said, work Pierre Thomas in the screen game. So I don't think Chicago gives them that shootout. Again, so I think you'll see probably a lot more Ingram this week to try to manage the game a little bit more. All right, that's going to do it with Five on Fantasy. We didn't get hijacked there. I don't know where these guys are. I guess they don't want their time. (laughs) Uh, What we're going to do is we're going to take a break, and we are going to come back with the great Lee Jenkins. I'm so excited for you to hear our interview with him. But we're also going to record Pick 4 a bit later, and I'll get the word out to those that didn't call us, uh, that they'll have another opportunity maybe to get their time during pick four.
That'll work. Okay, we'll be right back with the great Lee Jenkins. Our next guest is a native of San Diego, California, and graduated from Vanderbilt University. He started his career as a writer covering UCLA basketball for the Orange County Register, and then the Colorado Avalanche and Denver Nuggets for the Colorado Sports Gazette. Next, he spent four years at the New York Times covering various sports and the New York Mets and New New Jersey Nets. In September of 2007, he joined Sports Illustrated and SportsIllustrated.com as a senior writer where he covers basketball, football, and the sport closest to his heart, baseball. He's been honored for his writing by the New York Press Association, Football Writers Association of America, and the Colorado Press Association, and was named New York's best sports writer by the Village Voice. His introduction is so long that the fight song ended before I got to give a warm sportscaster's welcome to the great Lee Jenkins. How are you doing today, Lee? Crazy, thanks. I don't know if I can love for that intro, but thank you so much. <laughs> I, I think that's the first time that we've had somebody who uh, their intro was so great that it uh, surpassed yeah, the... Right. Uh, the fight song, but um, I'm excited to have you on. We haven't we haven't talked in a bit. It hasn't been too incredibly long. We always like to to keep you close, so it hasn't been that long. I think it was right around the NBA finals. I think we talked last, so yeah, right. um, we had uh, probably both had a nice summer, and now we're back here in the fall. And there's a ton going on. And you mentioned to me before that you've been kind of bouncing around and doing all kinds of stuff. And one thing that we haven't got a chance to talk about a a bit on the show because we're concentrating so much on football is baseball. So I want to do a couple minutes with you on baseball before we get yeah. to the awesome football game that you were at the other night. Uh, but uh, so Don and I kind of declared the season over a couple weeks ago. Mm-hmm. It seemed like, you know, baseball was in this point where, you know, they're desperate to expand the playoffs to try to create some more drama at this time of the season. But I kind of get just get this feeling that with the exception of the AL West and now maybe the NL wild card, if the Braves are going to keep fading like they have over the last week, um, it just seems like like the sport's kind of in like a stall period. Have you have you felt that way too? Or yeah, I have, and it's sort of I'll tell you the last week it, it sort of kicked up a notch for me a little bit just with the Angels, and and, and the Angels kind of hit a skid a little bit in the past couple days. Um, but I sort of felt like that race in the AL West kind of got interesting. Um, but, you know, the Angels just aren't, they're not really an elite team anymore, and it just doesn't feel like they have the gas. I mean, the, the, this, really the, the race I'm kind of looking at all of a sudden is that, is that AL wild card and just the possibility of the Rays, you know, catching the Red Sox. I mean, they just, the, the dynamic in that division, um, I think for a lot of us, there are people who kind of, Relate to small markets or grew up in small markets. The Rays are just sort of a team you inherently kind of relate to, and and really wanting them to make it interesting, and they have. I mean, it's interesting between them and the Red Sox, and you know, as kind of a you know somebody who always sort of pulls for those small markets, I would just love to see the Rays make this thing interesting and uh, and see if they can't get the Red Sox to choke it off here at the end. Yeah, both wild cards are getting a little bit closer than they were, say, a week or two ago. Obviously, you said Tampa Bay is only three games out. St. Louis has cut the NL wild card to four and a half. So I kind of mentioned off the top that Major League Baseball is considering this plan to add a second wild card to kind of increase the drama at this time of the year. But now as we look and things are getting tighter, 
would that be a mistake? Do you think? Or yeah, I mean, I, I don't love the second wild card in baseball just because I, you know, those first round series are are great series and they're really interesting. Um, Sometimes it just feels a little bit unfair to play this many games and then have your season be decided in a in a best of five, you know. And I think people inherently love that. You know, it's like college basketball; these sort of cruel, you know, post seasons where just because you played really well doesn't mean anything in the postseason. But to me, baseball's just always flown in the face of that. It's something where the best teams rise to the top by the end. The pretenders kind of get sorted out. And so, you know, I'm somebody who. Um, was probably a little reluctant to go to the format they have now, and I like it. Um, but I, I would—I really don't want them to kind of be moving in the direction that the NBA, for instance, went to. Because where, where, where you have in the NBA a situation in the playoffs where the best generally win those series, baseball is just the kind of sport where a best of five, a lot of times you'll get a team that maybe isn't that deserving, you know, w- w- winning there in the first round. Is there a plan or maybe an idea or something that – you think would work best to kind of eliminate some of the randomness of the first round while increasing some of the drama in these pennant races? I mean, because there is a problem when you have, you know, two teams like the Yankees and Red Sox who are going to play games in August and September that they could really care less about because right. there's really no difference between being the AL East champion and being the wild, cha- wild card champion as long as you're one of them. Right. I mean, I think that the, you know, the question would be, can you go four out of seven? You know, can you play a best of seven in the playoffs? Um, because then sort of you do have three of five in baseball is just so random. You know, anybody can beat anybody in baseball in a short series. It's not like, you know, football in that way or even in basketball. You just have, you know, random outcomes. It's like how, you know, the Yankees and the Red Sox will still lose 60 games or more in a season. Um, so I think that that, but if you play the best of seven, then you end up going all the way to November. And with those East Coast teams so powerful, you're going to have really cold weather sites and, you know, people worried about that then. So I, I don't really, if I were baseball, I wouldn't worry so much about the fact the races aren't tight this year. I mean, the, we had good races. We had some really good races last year. The NL West, for instance, went down to the last day. Um, look, there were great pennant races even before um, the wild card. You know, so, I mean, to me, the, the biggest question for baseball as far as making this more competitive, I mean, if the Red Sox and the Yankees are upset um, that, that it's too easy for them at the end of the season, then maybe baseball should look into revenue sharing and actually give other teams a, ch- a real chance, and then maybe you wouldn't have the Phillies and the Yankees and the Red Sox running away. That's a great point, you know, and uh, I think that should just lead us into kind of talking about the actual teams a little bit. And it seems like the Phillies have kind of run away with the season all year. And it's almost like we saw this coming as they put together this unbelievable yeah. pitching staff. You know, and they're, they're sitting there at 94 and 50, I think. They've, uh, th- you know, the Yankees are the second best team. And if they were in the same division, they'd be, what, six games behind them. Okay. So, I mean, it's like, can anyone beat Philadelphia? Well, I mean, I, you know, the series I kind of look at there, I really, I, I see a real drop-off in the NL with, um, you know, with both the, I know the Diamondbacks have had a great run, it's a great story, uh, but I just don't feel like they're really built um, to succeed in the playoffs. I think a lot of people in that organization are even surprised, you know, that they've done as well as they have. So to me, it's kind of the Brewers, you know, they're that team that's a little like maybe the Giants were last year. I was around them for a while, um, 
last month, and they're just they have a little bit of the identity that the '06 White Sox had, the '04 Red Sox, last year's Giants, where they're kind of that fun sort of you know kind of Animal House type team. Um, I think they're more talented, of course, offensively than the Giants were last year. Their pitching isn't as good as the Giants was, but they've got some women with Granke and Gallardo and Markham. I mean, they have a legitimate staff. Does it match up with the Phillies? No. Um, but in a, you know, in a best of seven, are they, you know, they could even end up playing them. No, they couldn't. I don't think they could end up, you know, there is a, actually a way that they could end up playing them in the first round, um, I believe. Right. So and especially if they got them in a best of five, um, to me, they're, they're a team that's dangerous. They're young. They have a lot of fun. Um, you know, they're a little bit more spunky, I think, than any team in the National League, but they have kind of an American League type of lineup. The one thing about them is if they're a lot better at home than they are on the road. I mean, they really feast on that, on, on their home environment and the crowd there. So I think for them, having to go on the road um, to Philadelphia could be tough. I, I kind of thought that for them it was important to, to have home feel for that first round. I mean, that's a team that um, I don't think has even won a playoff series since 1982. I was two years old then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Zach Granke has always been kind of a polarizing figure. Are you as interested in I am to see how he reacts to the postseason? I mean, last year we kind of had it with Halliday getting his first chance to uh, play in the postseason. I don't expect Granke to go out and throw a perfect game like Halliday did, but you know, he's a guy who's kind of been kind of aloof sometimes in his career, kind of seemed like he maybe got bored in Kansas City. But I'm really excited to see how he responds to the bright lights, so to speak, of the postseason. Yeah, I mean, he has, you know, he has real medical issues. I mean, he has serious, you know, issues that he deals with. And I actually think that, um, in a lot of ways, a market like Milwaukee has been good for him. I, you know, he's a guy who doesn't. It's really interesting. I mean, he, he doesn't do any interviews. He doesn't talk to the media on any day except when he pitches. You know, and when you talk to him, I did talk to him a little for a little bit alone, and, and he's, you know, it's kind of a painful experience for him. I mean, you can just tell he doesn't really like that attention. So I'm curious as you are to see how he's going to do in the playoffs because he's really never, you know, he's had problems, obviously, but he's never even had that kind of major attention. I mean, even though he's been a major league pitcher, we're talking about Kansas City and now Milwaukee, you know, two of the smallest markets in, in baseball. So it, yeah, I'm with you. It's going to be interesting um, to see how he reacts personally, but he is so highly gifted, um, and, and especially at home. I mean, he's just been so lights out at home. Uh, he might have to pitch on the road, but, you know, I still think he, you know, is he as good as Roy Halladay? No, probably not. And that's kind of like the Brewers. I mean, they're just a, they're a slightly poorer version of the Phillies. That doesn't mean that they can't beat them. It just means they probably won't. Right. So the important thing for the Brewers is going to be to finish ahead of Arizona so that well, they I mean, can you, avoid you Philadelphia. You could look at it two ways. You could say that. Or you could say that to beat the Phillies, you want them, you know, because everybody else can have inferior pitching, that you want them in the shorter series where maybe you can, you know, steal right. a game there Good point. and then get back home. And that's where those best of fives, you know, we've seen it in past years. I mean, the Yankees had some really dominant, great teams in, in Tory's latter years that, that lost in the first round of the playoffs. You know, we saw them lose in, in Anaheim. We saw Detroit. them lose in Detroit. Yeah. It can happen. Um, and it can happen to the Phillies, too. I mean, you just... You can't ever be comfortable in baseball in those best of fives. But once the Phillies are in a, a best of seven, I would get a little bit more confident. It, it, look, it's, it's really hard to think of a way um, that the Phillies aren't going to get there. To me, it's a lot easier to think of a way that the Yankees won't get there because their pitching just isn't as powerful as the, 
you know, as the Yankees, as the um, Phillies is, really their pitching isn't as powerful as a, a handful of teams. They're going to have to win games, you know, nine to five, and they they do win a lot of games nine to five, so it shouldn't be too much of a problem. I kind of have a question that I don't know. It might be impossible to answer, and if it is, that's okay. You can just say that. But uh, <laughs> I've kind of really been a fan of uh, this new kind of programming in sports, like the. Uh, HBO did a twenty four se- does the twenty four sevens on boxing, and yeah, they did yeah. uh, they did the twenty four seven on the NHL um, Winter Classic, and we've had hard knocks for a few years. And this year, Showtime uh, did a, a season with the San Francisco Giants, right? And the Giants were kind of a team that was kind of cruising along, doing pretty well. And then the show started, and I don't know if it was a coincidence or not, but. As the show went, I think it was seven episodes, the team just kept going down and down and down and down. And I wonder, is that going to prevent a team in the future from wanting to do something like that? Do you think that there was a distraction built in there? Or do you think that the Giants were just a team that was kind of ripe for this kind of great run, year and a half run to kind of end? And that, you know, maybe the Wilson injury was more of what hurt them and the all the other injuries that they dealt with than any kind of TV distraction thing that I might be making up in my head. No, no, I think it's a good, it's a good thing to talk about. I mean, it's, I, mean, I have a few different thoughts about this. I'll start with just the Giants. Um, I do think the Giants, in a lot of ways, were a house of cards. I mean, they're such an unbalanced team, and you looked at it statistically last year. It, you know, I'm never going to say a team got lucky, but they were an anomaly. You know, they played in the you know, a pretty weak division. Um, they had the pitching to get them through the playoffs. But if you look at some of the people they put on the field last year, I mean, Pat Burrell, you know, trusting Juan Uribe and having him get some of the hits they had, even this year, signing Miguel Tejada, Aaron Rowan. I mean, they had some really questionable offensive players and position players that they had come in there. And, and they were very fortunate um, that it all kind of worked out. And sometimes stars just align like that for you in sports, and, and you should be grateful, um, but, may, but shouldn't necessarily expect for it to happen again. You know, pitching is, is great, and it's, it's what everybody wants, and it can, it can get you there, but it's kind of like, you know, if you're going to win every game, try to win every game two to one, it only, it only stands to reason that you're going to, you know, the odds are you're going to end up losing a bunch of those games as well. Mm-hmm. You know, you're just not giving yourself a lot of margin for error, and the, and the Giants haven't. Um, I'm surprised, to be honest, that a team like the Diamondbacks was capable of, of catching them. Uh, but I do think that you, know, you, you, you hit on something. I think there are certain teams um, that maybe are more able to handle a situation like that, to handle, um, you know, hard knocks or to handle kind of a show that's around you all the time. The Giants situation to me always felt a little bit fragile. Um, you know, you have some guys with big personalities. And I don't know, see, did they go in the tank after, like, while well, it was being filmed or when it came out? Yeah, like, you they kind of picked it up, like, like, the first show was right around the All-Star break. And they basically just had a little bit of, of footage up to that point that they kind of caught you up. But then it seemed like as each show went on, they were actually following the specific, you know, we were we were in the season with them. And it felt like right. that was the time that they really started to decline. It was like each episode, it went from, okay, they have a five-game lead in the division to, uh-oh, it's down to two, to, uh-oh, right. we're down by two, to, uh-oh, the season's over, you know, and... Uh, and no, and they're not used to it. I mean, there's a lot of media in San Francisco, but they're probably not used to 
having that. I remember doing a trip, coincidentally, to the Brewers also, but it was a few years ago. I took a, an entire road trip with them. I flew with them. I was in their hotel, the whole thing. And they lost every game on the trip. Um, and they were a good team. It was the year they went to the playoffs. You know, I'm not saying that it had anything um, to do with it, but sometimes you have these teams that kind of aren't used to that, you know, that extra attention. I, look, I know a lot of NFL teams, you know, executives who've been with NFL teams who've gone through the hard knocks process, and most all of them say they wouldn't want to do it again right. um, because it's just it, it's it becomes something that um, I don't think they totally you know they want the exposure for their clubs, um, but it takes a certain team like the Jets were the perfect team for hard knocks. You know when you have you know, these guys who are sort of used to being loose and free, and that's kind of part of the culture. Um, it's not a big deal, but when you have guys who aren't really used to that, um, you know, it can be I think probably a little bit disarming for them. It's why a lot of those. Correct me if I'm wrong. I feel like a lot of those teams that have been on hard knocks haven't done well. Yeah, I mean, um, if the Jets were the exception. Yeah, the Chiefs were on. Ended up having an awful season. Of course, they had. That no, was kind of a bad team. In that general. was a bad team in general. Yeah, and then like the, the Cowboys. Bengals, maybe. The Cowboys, that the year they were on, they were I remember watching and thinking, "Wow, this team is going to be great," and they weren't. And we talked a little. I mentioned twenty four seven how they did the Winter Classic thing. The Washington Capitals didn't win a game. I don't think the whole huh. time it was being filmed. Wow, that's you funny. know. And I, I just and the reason I brought it up with the Giants is just because I've been thinking more and more about these programs, and and it, I'm just wondering if. As great as they are for us, if they're they're not that great for the teams that no, have the to teams deal don't with want that. that stuff. I mean, they, you know, the teams, the players, when they, you know, they don't really want that stuff. You know, they rarely. You know, you have some guys who are kind of more like showmen, and they want the exposure. I think you'd see that maybe in a situation like the Jets. Um, but generally speaking, um, teams don't want to do that stuff, um, or afterward they wonder kind of why they did it. Um, you know, but that's that's like a lot of things with you know with media. It's like it's a double-edged sword. You want the exposure, um, but it also takes you know time. And there's somebody else kind of um, in your kitchen. I think it's important when teams decide they're going to do it. They have to really think about their personnel and their coaching staff and decide that if it's you know is it the kind of thing that that works with us and our identity. And I think the Giants, and the, this is kind of getting off on a, on a tangent, but. They were sort of build, build themselves as kind of these um, misfits and castoffs and like this really kind of fun team. Um, to be honest, that's never the vibe I got when I was hmm. there and around them. I, I didn't feel like they were all that much fun. And you know, some of the guys they have are, um, you know, kind of kind of surlier guys. But then you also have some guys like Lincecum who are big personalities and Zito. Um, so I just, you know, to be honest, I kind of think it was they were a little bit misread and maybe they weren't the perfect team. Maybe Brian Wilson was the perfect person. Right. Um, but as far as that team, you know, just to me, when you're trying to win every single game 2-1, to one, I wouldn't try to do anything to upset the apple cart. I mean, it's so... What they had going last year was so fragile, and I, I'm still kind of in shock. I, mean, we, I think in 20 years, we'll be looking back at the lineup they trotted on the field for the World Series and say, what? Yeah. How is that possible? How did they do that? You know, they signed Miguel Tejada this year as an upgrade. And that's how, how truly pathetic they were um, as an offensive baseball team. For them to have won the World Series is just, it's like you just don't want to disturb anything there. You know, I wouldn't want to touch anything at, at AT&T Park because it's such, a, it's such a fragile recipe that they had going. I look at the Padres, you know, because it's my hometown team. They were in it until the final day right with the Giants. 
and, and the, team, the lineup they were trotting out was abysmal too. It's sort of these what's going on right now in baseball is you just have these teams that are all about pitching and no hitting, and it's great to be like that, um, or it's fine to be like that, but you got to know that it can go the other way on you in a hurry because if you're only scoring a couple runs, your pitchers have no margin for error whatsoever. One last thing about baseball, because I do want to have a little bit of time to talk about football, but what did you make of the Pirates this year? Because they, they hung in there so well. There was so much excitement. I'm not that far from Pittsburgh. We're about three yeah. hours away. I love PNC Park. I think it's one of the most beautiful places so awesome. in the world. Yeah. You know, and I was so excited to see them doing well. And I'm looking at the standings right now, and they're 18 and a half games back. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, there's no chance that they're going to – I don't think yeah. there's any chance that they're going to finish above 500 unless they go on some crazy run here to end the season. But what was your kind of take on them? I know they're a little bit ahead of schedule anyway. But what's your general feeling about the Pirates and kind of going forward? Are we ever going to see a playoff game at PNC Park? Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, we will. No, um, you know, I think that our, that's kind of part of the growth is that team who is sort of in it and makes it fun around the deadline, and then they kind of collapse in August. You know, it's sort of a that sort of happens every year to some kind of upstart team, and it's sort of fun. To, they're fun to watch, and then they kind of fall. Apart. Apart, just like we're talking about. I mean, usually the best teams show themselves in baseball, and the ones who aren't that good end up falling apart. And the Pirates, you know, weren't that good. But it's like you said. I mean, that situation there is a real process. I mean, to me, one of the best nights for the Pirates was the draft deadline night when they, you know, signed a lot of yep. guys, some guys I didn't think they would sign. Um, that showed kind of an ownership commitment. I think they still have some work to do as far as um, the way they develop pitchers. Um, I did, you know, it's funny. I did a story with. Um, a kid named Trevor Bauer, a, a draft pick of the of the Diamondbacks. He was picked third overall, and he's kind of an interesting, really um, precocious kid who has a lot of opinions about building of arms and protecting of arms. And he actually, there were teams he didn't want to be drafted by, um, and, and he didn't mention the Pirates by name, even though they picked first and they picked his college teammate Garrett Cole. But I know the Pirates were one of those teams that he felt like the throwing program was really restrictive and not very progressive, and then it's hindered the development of some pitchers he knows. So to me, that's, you know, a t- an organization like the Pirates, um, in a lot of ways, like with the way they've handled their pitchers, I mean, it's borne out by just how unsuccessful they've been at getting highly drafted pitchers to the major leagues. To me, that's something that they still need to, you know, really look at. Cause it's, it's hurt them in the Sportscasters are here with uh, Lee Jenkins from Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. You can find him on Twitter, SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Uh, let's talk a little bit about football. You were lucky enough to be at maybe one of the one of the great games of the week. You were in New York for the Jets and the Cowboys, and I was actually at a Pearl Jam concert in Toronto, <laughs> and uh, I was following on my phone, and uh, it's like uh, the the Cowboys are winning, the Cowboys are winning, the Cowboys are winning, the Cowboys are winning, uh, the Cowboys lost. Uh, yeah. <laughs> what was your impression of the game? Um, what did you think about both teams? Both teams are very polarizing, very interesting. Um, where do you see kind of both seasons going from there? You know, I actually, I was really impressed by the Cowboys. I mean, I know they lost the game and they're taking, um, you know, they're taking a lot of hell this week and Tony Romo's taking, you know, predictable shots, but... I thought they were a lot better than I thought they, you know, than I thought they were going to be. I thought they're, they're. I mean, that was the worst one, of the worst defense in the NFL, worst defense in Cowboy history last year, um, and they really, they really stuffed the Jets were on it for three quarters. 
you know, just stifled them. They have a new defensive coordinator, Rob Ryan, who I read about this week for the magazine. Um, and and I, look, I was impressed with Romo, too. I mean, I, he made two bad decisions. He shouldn't try to run it in, and he ended up fumbling, and then he had the pick, um, of course, at the end when they were trying to drive and score. You know, those are... Those are the kind of mistakes he's made throughout his career, um, but it was just a prolific passing game, and you saw, you just saw elements of that Cowboys offense where you know they might be a team that could challenge the Eagles in that division. I mean, Des Bryant, he, for the in the first half, I thought I was watching Michael Irvin. I mean, he looked so hmm. much physically like Michael Irvin um, and played so well. I don't know if it was cramps that got to him or if Revis just um, completely took him out of his game. But my takeaway, honestly, is that the Cowboys are going to have a pretty good season and are going to be a, you know, a real threat, and, and I would say even a playoff team. And for the Jets, I think they will be also. Um, you know, the, the confidence they get, I think, from that coach is just I – mean, people get so irritated by, that, by Rex Ryan. But it's just clear that that team believes in itself. They had no business winning that game. I mean, they, they were completely outplayed for three quarters, uh, but they just, they grind, and they, they do this over and over again. They do it to more talented teams in the playoffs. They've done it to the Patriots in the playoffs. They've done it to Chargers, where you don't really know how they're doing it, and, you know, Mark Sanchez don't look that great, uh, but they end up right there at the end. I, I feel like that defense, you know, you can see it's getting a little slower. You know, they, you know, they gave up a ton of yards in that game to Dallas. They're getting older. They're getting slower. Um, but they they hang on and they dig in and I mean I just think it's a it's a tremendous credit to kind of the culture there and what Rex Ryan's instilled they they believe they're going to win all the time no matter who they're playing. You know you mentioned that people kind of get annoyed with Rex Ryan and I kind of feel bad about that because we've created this paradox in sports where we get so annoyed when we interview or talk to athletes and they just go through the same old cliche, the 110%, this kind of thing. But then when we have these people who are kind of outspoken, we rip them too. too. It's like they can't, you can't win. Not me. I know. I mean, I I never understand that. It's a great point. And I'm always, I'm always asking sports writers about that. What are you talking about? You don't want them to say anything. You don't want them to, and it was an interesting story I did last week because it was about kind of the brothers and whether, you know, part of the story was whether, you know, this could be what the new NFL head coach kind of looks like and talks like, you know, sort of, you know, it doesn't really look like your accountant. Somebody who actually looks like a football coach and sounds like one and is, you know, hugely confident. And it was interesting. Players were said um, that they get annoyed when their coaches will say one thing out, like, to the media and then another behind closed doors. And it's sort of like, hey, if you believe it, let it be known. Don't be a phony about it. And that's sort of, you know, more of the athlete code, whereas the coach code is to be very, very careful. Um, and it's more corporate. It's the NFL to corporate league. It's to be very careful when the cameras are on and the microphones are on. And, and I'm with you. I mean, to me, Rex Ryan is, is great. And I don't just say that because he's great for, for quotes for our magazine or for the newspaper or whatever. You know, I just like... I think as, a, as fans, as people who observe sports, it's nice to know what's really going on in these people's heads. You know, I, in a way, I kind of think we're owed that. You know, it's where the public watches it, and people buy the tickets, um, and they should be allowed, I think, some unvarnished look at, at what it really is. And he definitely gives that to you, and not a lot of NFL head coaches do. And the players will. They will. They're just they're not in front of that. That they're not on that podium all the time. You got to get him another times. Right. How do Pugs Go Burris look to you? 
He looked good. I mean, I you know, he looked good. I have my eye more on the Cowboys, to be honest. But okay. you know, he made some big plays for them in the in the fourth quarter, and you know, he's going to be a great. Look, they have a lot of weapons. They have a lot of weapons for Mark Sanchez. My, you know, Mark Sanchez in the end had a good game. I just, I still wonder if he's really ready to join the elite, or whether the Jets, when it comes playoff time, are going to always kind of have a quarterback. And he's in his third year, and that's traditionally a year when quarterbacks take a big jump. Um, but if they're going to have that quarterback who they'll feel comfortable, you know, going up against Brady, Rivers, um, you know, they, and look, it's going to be different without Manning. It's like it's like the pool has just been, or without the Colts probably, the pool has been shrunk, and that's probably going to help the Jets. Um, but still, they may have to be a wild card once again and have to go through that really tough road. I mean, we haven't seen what they're capable of when they have a favorable setup. They always had seen yeah. with Rex Ryan. They made it to the play AFC Championship game the last two years. They've had to go on the road and win all these hard games, and it may be like that again, just because New England's in their division. Yeah, and New England looks like they're uh, they're poised yeah. to really just crush. I mean, it's just you get that feeling with them. But um, you mentioned yeah, the it idea. Could be, it could be really there, you know, especially without the Colts involved. Yep. Um, you know, the Steelers may have. Sometimes do this; they'll kind of take a year off a little bit. And yeah, I'm not going to doom them after one week. Um, but it was definitely a little bit jarring to see how badly they got beat. I mean, the, the AFC all of a sudden without Manning, it just feels a lot thinner and, and really right there for the Patriots to take. Absolutely. Well, you said you were focusing on the. The Cowboys. So I do have a couple Cowboys questions to kind of close this out. The first yeah. one is, do you think that Felix Jones is capable of handling that load with Marion Barber gone? I know they have DeMarco Murray there, who I always loved at Oklahoma. Um, and maybe he gets involved as the season goes on and he gets more comfortable picking up blitzes and things like that. But do you think that position's stable if it's Felix Jones and Felix Jones and Felix Jones? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, yeah, I, I like Felix Jones. I mean, it's funny, he's never been the feature back. I mean, even, I think going back to high school, he wasn't even the feature back, of course, at Arkansas, because they had McFadden back right. then. So it's something, you know, we've never seen out of him. Um, but the speed is there, and, you know, the weapons, are, I mean, between Austin, Bryant, Jason Witten, Romo, you know, I feel like offensively they're going to be fine. And they were even a pretty good offense last year. It's, for them, I think a lot of this is going to depend on, on defense and Romo really kind of taking that step. You know, I, I do kind of consider him an elite, well, maybe maybe a step under elite, uh, but he's so, you know, when he is going, when he's hot, there are just few better than him. And that's why it was kind of an interesting game Sunday um, because he was hot for so much of it, and you could sort of see – you know, kind of a crowning of Tony Romo kind of night, and then in the end, you know, again, he's the GOAT. Um, but look, there it, it was a game that the Cowboys couldn't have expected to win when they did their W's and L's on their schedule, right. like fans do before the season. They couldn't have expected to win it. Um, so to play as well as they did, I think they should, I thought they should leave pretty optimistic, actually. And, you know, one thing to defend uh, Tony Romo, uh, he didn't, he wasn't on the punt team, Right. I mean, yeah, that, that exactly. game would have I mean, never got to that block. if without you know, that punt block. That's the kind of thing you can clean up. You get the punt blocked. And Reeves' pick was, um, it, was terrible. It, was, it was a terrible decision, but it was a pretty good disguise by the Jets. They had Brodney Poole disguising a blitz, drops back behind him, so Reeves is able to gamble in a way that Reeves never is able to because he's always alone on that side of the field. You know, so you got the you know maybe the best corner in football finally getting a chance to gamble on a ball, and he gets the pick. You know, I'm not going to give Romo a you know I'm not going to give him a pass for it necessarily. But anybody who thinks 
well, maybe we should go in a different direction if you're Dallas. It's just, you know, you're out of their mind. Okay, last thing. We live in Buffalo, and we've gone through hell, while well, Bill fans have gone through hell with Ralph Wilson and his kind of refusal to give up any control. And he's a man who's in his 90s now, okay? Dallas or uh, Oakland has kind of went through this with uh, Mr. Yeah, Davis. Yeah. You know, and then I look at the Cowboys, and Jerry Jones isn't as old as them, but he hasn't quite had the success that he had when he first took over, obviously, and he had that, that dynasty in the early 90s. Do you worry at all for the Cowboys that as Jerry Jones gets a little bit older, um, he considers himself a football guy? I don't know if football people consider him a football guy or not, but uh, do you think there's anything to worry about there as Jerry Jones gets a little bit older? Do you think that it might be a little yeah. bit harder? No, I, I, I worry about any owner who, who is so certain of his own abilities as far as player evaluation goes as Jerry Jones. I mean, what I, I think what you love about Jerry Jones is his heart and how much he cares about the Cowboys because when it comes down to it, that's what we want from our owners is to care as much as we do, to care as much as fans do. Um, but you want somebody else to kind of be the head a little bit in that in that relationship and you you know look it's been borne out so many times in sports that what works is a really dedicated um, generous owner who's willing to write big checks and cares about his club and what works is a GM who kind of knows how to spend that and when I see teams go away from that model it just makes you wonder what kind of history they've been looking at. Uh, but these owners have made so much money and they've been so successful that a lot of ego goes along with that, and they believe that they can buck the trend. Um, but, yeah, as an observer to me, I just say, look back at history. This model has worked over and over again for so many teams, and that other model, and we always hear about the meddlesome owner. So, yeah, I'm always, I'm always very, very suspicious of it. It's like even... I live in L.A., I do a lot of NBA, and, you know, right now in L.A., like, there are all these reports about Jerry Buss, who's been, you know, an incredible owner for the Lakers, very committed, willing to write the checks. But his son, Jim, is now kind of getting into a position of more control, making player evaluation, player development decisions. We don't even have to know the situation to know that's not going to go well. Right. It never goes well. I mean, those kind of dynamics so rarely work that why would you ever try it? Why would you ever entrust these crown jewels and public trust um, to that kind of risk? It's the Sportscasters, Lee Jenkins. This is probably about the fourth time we've done it. It gets better and better every time. Uh, you mentioned your story about uh, the pitcher from Arizona. I read that in the magazine. You mentioned something about Rex, uh, the Ryan brothers. What else can we look forward to you writing in the magazine here in the future? Oh, uh, just... Uh See, I did one also about that um, about that beating at Dyser Stadium with Brian Ooh, uh, Brian yeah. Stowe. So that was a long one, and um, just kind of about Frank McCord and the whole situation in L.A. and sort of how how ugly that whole thing is, but also how you know what happened there really wasn't as probably unique as people think it was. It happens in a lot of stadiums, and uh, you know something to uh, that. So that was a if somebody has about half hour on their hands or forty five minutes, that wouldn't be a that was kind of an interesting one to report. It was kind of I felt more like a crime reporter, a cop reporter than a sports writer. So <laughs> trust me, I'm glad to be out on the field somewhere. All right. It's the Sportscasters. Lee Jenkins. Again, you can find him at Sports Illustrated, sportsillustrated.com. He's on Twitter, SI underscore Lee Jenkins. Thank you very much, Lee. It was a great time as usual, and we'll talk to you again soon. Cool. Thanks for having me, guys. Really appreciate it. Thank you.
All right, I have to thank Lee Jenkins. I think I said it off the top, just the nicest guy that we've encountered since we've been doing this, and we really appreciate his time. All right, I mentioned off the top also that we were going to try a new segment today where we kind of recap some of the things that went on during football over the weekend. We're not going to get to that today, and the reason is because we got to get to some book club stuff. The book club, we kind of put a little bit on the back burner over the summer because the summer is the summer, and people like to just have a good time, and you know, we thought that maybe there wouldn't be quite as much support for the book club during the summer. Well, it's fall time, and I think it's time to get back to this, mostly because we actually have a good segment of our listeners who really do enjoy the book club. And uh, we had some success with it. So we're going to get back to it. And the first thing I want to mention is that pre-orders have started for the Best American Sports Writing 2011. One of our best months of doing the book club was the month that we just kind of focused on the different editions of the Best American Sports Writing series. We ended up giving a copy of the Best American Sports Writing of the Century out. We had a lot of fun with that. The new edition, pre-orders have begun on Amazon.com. It's only $10, and it was edited this year by Jane Levy, who was on show number 30. So the book club of the month book for October is going to be the 2011 version of the Best American Sports Writing. Jane Levy will join us to talk about it at the end of the month, and I'm sure Glenn Stout would be available if we'd like as well. So that is a guaranteed book that we can get some good interaction from the author or in this case, the guest editor. And I think that's the perfect book for October. But it's September. It's kind of the middle of September. We don't have a ton of time for it. But I thought that there's been a sport that Don and I haven't really talked about much in this show, and that is MMA. And we've been wanting to try to find a way to kind of introduce MMA to the show and maybe not talk about it as much as we talk about football and hockey and some of the other stuff, but to have it on our radar and be able to talk right. about it now and again. It just so happens one of our best friends, who's actually on this episode of the show and who's going to join us right after this, is John Wertheim. And John has actually written an incredible book about MMA called Blood in the Cage. Mixed martial arts, Pat Militic, Militic and the Furious Rise of the USC. So that's going to be our book club book of the month for September. You can pick up the soft cover book for five dollars on amazon uh, i'm sure it's available in digital formats on your kindle or uh, ibooks or anything like that we'll spend a few weeks with it and i'm sure john would be more than glad to come on when we're finished to talk about it with us the book club book of the month for october doesn't come out until tuesday october 4th so we got a few extra days and maybe we'll plan on talking to John that first week of October, the day that the new book club book of the month comes out, and then we'll start transferring into that. So that's the plan for the book club. This book, this month's book of the month is Blood in the Cage by John Wertheim. It's about mixed martial arts. It's going to be a way for us to kind of introduce mixed martial arts to the show. I'm sure John will be more than glad to come on and talk about it with us at the end of the month. And then for October... The plan is to do the Best American Sports Writing Series of 2011, and I'm sure we'll be able to talk to Jane Levy and to Glenn Stout about it. So I want to thank again Lee Jenkins. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the author of the current book club book of the month, John Wertheim. <laughs> Thank you. 
Our next guest is from Bloomington, Indiana, and is a graduate of Yale University. He made his first appearance on the Sportscasters while promoting the New York Times best-selling book, Scorecasting, the hidden influences between how sports are played and games are won. His work has been published four times in the Best American Sports Writing Anthology and once in the Best American Crime Writing Series. He's a senior writer for Sports Illustrated and one of the most accomplished sports journalists in America, making his fourth appearance on the Sportscasters. A warm welcome to the great John Wertheim. How are you doing today, John? Good. How are you doing? Doing great. Super excited to have you on today. Everyone should know that you're very, very kind and flexible to make this happen. And uh, I want to talk tennis with you. I want to talk about this U.S. Open. But before I get to that, I have to mention, because we've talked about it the last few times you've been on, that my younger brother has had the first weekend in college to remember. I mean, he, he got to Yale, okay, and the first email he got from the college was a hurricane evacuation plan. And uh, they uh, survived the hurricane the first weekend, and uh, his second weekend he got mono. Oh, jeez. Uh, yeah. It can only go up from here. Is it, that right? It can only go up for there for him, huh? So, uh, but might, he, might have believed there's, there was cause and effect? It could be. I mean, he, he says he's enjoying it. He's taking Indonesian because all the hockey players told him to. So Boy. that's his... Uh, Nothing says hockey quite like Indonesian. That's right. But uh, you have been, uh, I'm assuming, spending the last few weeks uh, fighting the rain yourself at the U.S. Open. I know the men's final had to be pushed uh, back to Monday, and the women's final also was pushed to Sunday. And uh, it's been a pretty interesting, interesting tournament. And it's been much more interesting on the men's side. So let's just do the women's side real quick. We had your colleague Richard Deitch on last week, and he said there was no way that Miss Williams was not going to win this tournament. And she didn't. What happened? That is a great question because I would have said the same thing. She, uh, you know, every, everybody's talking about this tirade and this this sort of rant she went on and how ugly it was, and it was. But lost in all this was she was really, really badly outplayed in a final by a player who had never before won a major. This Sam Stoser of Australia came to that match like it was the most important match of her life, and this was one of the rare occasions where somebody really rose to the uh, occasion against Serena Williams and just outplayed her from start to finish. It was a, it was a great performance by uh, Stoser. It's just that it's sort of gotten a little bit lost in uh, you know all, all the all the controversy that's come out of that match since then. And I do want to ask you about that, but the first question I have is, who is she? Who's, who's Stoser? Am I, am, I, uh, am I a fool for not knowing more about her? No, I mean, that's, you know, the talent has always been there. I'm trying to think of a good example offhand that it's not coming to me of a player who's just got all the, uh, you know, the whole package, but has never been able to put it together from a mental standpoint. And finally she did. She's sort of been the veteran player from Australia. She was a French Open finalist, a uh, great athlete. But she's, oh, I mean, she lost in the first round of Wimbledon, a big upset queen, because mentally she just hasn't been there. And for whatever reason, she was just a mental rock at uh, at the U.S. Open. It was really a big breakthrough for her. Yeah, I, and uh, I was I was as shocked as anyone that uh, Williams didn't win it. So, what was your take on the outburst? I saw it. It was ugly, as you said. Uh, it was disappointing. Did she overreact a little bit, or does she? Is it possible that she's right that this judge has it in for her? I mean, I highly doubt it, right? No, it was yeah. it was just it was just such a bizarre, ugly 
bully move. I mean, what even if she had been wronged, which she hadn't, um, it, was, it was a completely legitimate call. What came out of her mouth was so bizarre. I hate you. I despise you. You're a hater. You're ugly on right. the inside. If you ever see me in the hall, you better look away. It was just so random and sort of gave such a insight into what, what just such a weird response. And keep in mind, too, I mean, Serena had this ugly episode two years ago. She was sort of on this double secret probation. She also, before the match, said she was going to dedicate it to 9 11 and to have this sort of ugly, strange, really antisocial, it was almost creepy um, outburst. It was just, I mean, again, this was just one of these bizarre sports moments you, you can't make up. In your mind, was she kind of treated with kid gloves to only get a $2,000 fine for that? Should the, in your mind, should the penalty have been more severe? Yeah, I mean, you know... This this arguing with the uh, with the officials is something unfortunately that isn't unique to Serena. I mean, a n- number of other players do, and I think on you know on on sort of precedent and principle, when Andy Roddick goes off or when when other players scream uh, similarly, you know you, you can't find one player two hundred grand and the other two thousand. I mean, I think the fine was was by the book, but I, I just thought the occasion w- was 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 so ruined, and it was just such a weird display. That um, you know, they, they, you got to take a stand at some point. And again, keep in mind, this is the last time Serena played the U.S. Open. She threatened to, you know, kill, kill the foot-faulting umpire by stuffing the ball down her throat. Right. So, um, I mean, the other thing too is just sort of, you know, this is really a second offense. So she she got a five hundred thousand dollar bonus, not even her prize money, a bonus for winning this, this nonsense, this U.S. Open series. So a, a $2,000 fine is, is almost laughable. Yeah, it's like a couple. Uh, she can find that in the couch cushion somewhere. Exactly. Right. Exactly. All right, well, let's get away from the ugliness because there was some really exciting tennis on the men's side over the course of the tournament. And one thing that has really has me quite excited is, is Donald Young and the, the performance that he put in. Uh, he did lose to Annie Murray on straight sets, and maybe that was kind of insignificant in the sense that he got to where he got in the final, what is was it, 2, 4, 6, uh, wait, 2, 4, 6, 8, 10, 12, 14, the final 16. So what are your thoughts on Donald Young? Is he kind of the next great U.S. tennis player? Uh, I know he's only a 1989 born, so he's still quite a young kid. What was your thought in his week at the U.S. Open? And uh, do you think that this was just kind of a one-time him putting it together, or do you think he can build on this and get even better next season? Yeah, no, I mean, Donald Young's been a prospect that we've all uh, that we've all known about for a while. And everybody was sort of waiting for the breakthrough. We had this sort of ugly episode where he, he had these, these Twitter, uh, he had these tweets that were... Um, Sort of, sort of against the USTA, and was was reprimanded for that. And he was turning out to be somebody said he was the Freddie Adu of, oh, uh, of tennis. I once called him the Kwame Brown of tennis. I mean, there's always been a lot of talent there. I mean, this guy, when he was 14 years old, management agencies were you know tripping over themselves. He had the big Nike deal and hasn't been able to put it together. And then finally, he comes to this tournament, and he was great. I mean, he he played well. He conducted himself well. He got to the round of 16. And suddenly, this this looked like another one of these tennis burnout, tennis disappointment stories. And suddenly, it looks like it's going to have a much uh, a much happier turn. So, no, Donald Young was definitely one of the uh, definitely one of the nicer stories to come out of the tournament. 
how skilled is he? How like how what's his what's if he reaches his full, full potential? What exactly is his upside in your opinion? That's a great question because nobody's quite. I mean, he's he's a terrific athlete. He might be the fastest player on tour. He's left-handed. I mean, he's got a lot going for him. Great hands, but he's not a, a big kid. And mentally, he's he's had a tough time. He gets down on himself very easily, and there's sort of questions about his work ethic. And he's coached by his parents, which is always fraught. Um, so it's he's really an interesting case because talent-wise, he's really an elite player, but he hasn't been able to put it together. I, mean, I think realistically, is this guy going to be a Wimbledon champion one day? Probably not. But is this somebody who could be, you know, a, a top twenty player? Uh, yeah, I, I would say so. Very nice. So he got to the round of sixteen. There's a couple of Americans in there, Eisner and Roddick. Also, they were both. Uh, out by the final four, but that didn't take away from really having some great, great tennis in the semifinal and the final. And it kind of starts with the Federer and Jokovic match. Uh, how stunned were you that for the second time, kind of this season, after some incredible streak of never losing after uh, going up two sets, that Federer couldn't close it out again? No, it's, I mean, he's, uh, in the U.S. Open last year, he had match points against Djokovic and lost. In Wimbledon, he was up two sets to love and lost in five sets. And then, again, on Saturday, match points against Djokovic and lost. It was, at this point in his career, when he's really playing for these majors, when he has a finite number of these tournaments left, for Federer not to slam the door and win that match after he was one point away was really, uh, that, that was just stunning. That was really something to see. I'm you know, you sort of look at what's at stake, and you look at what he's really out there playing for, and you ache for the guy. I mean, he must. This this is not some twenty three year old kid who can say, "Oh well, I'll get him next time." I mean, this is one of these stinging, stinging defeats that we'll see how long it takes to uh, for him to get over that. Let's talk about Djokovic for a minute because he really had one of the all time seasons. I know he's only lost two matches all year. He won three of the four majors. Was in the semifinals in the French. Can you kind of, as a tennis guy, put his season in historical perspective as where it ranks as one of the all-time seasons? Yeah, that's that's what a lot of people are talking about today. And, you know, I mean, just sort of, if you go by the numbers, you just sort of look at the math, um, it, it's a great, great season. What I think people aren't realizing is that, you know, Federer had a great season five years ago, um, when he only lost five matches. But the big knock on that was, well, who's the competition? He's, he isn't being challenged. He isn't being pressed. It's a soft period. You can't say that now. I mean, Djokovic is doing this on every surface, on every continent, throughout the year, and he's doing it while Federer and Nadal are on the scene. So I, I just think it's remarkable. I mean, I, I don't think he's quite gotten his due, and I think that people aren't necessarily, you know, people are still trying to figure out what to make of him, but this has just been an unbelievable run he's been on. It's pretty easy to explain Federer and his season. It's like, you know, he's getting towards the end of his career. He doesn't have anything left to prove to anyone. He's accomplished maybe more than anyone in the sport. He's a Hall of Famer, an all-time great. But this season, and this is kind of strange to say because he's playing in finals and things like that, but was this season kind of a step back for Nadal a little bit? You know, it was such a weird season for Nadal because he did fine. It was just one guy who right. totally got in his head who he couldn't figure out. And it's, this is more more proof that tennis is sort of a game of matchups. 
Um, you know, Nadal had a great season, but he could not figure out Djokovic. He lost to him six times, all six times they played. Nadal won three majors last year. He only won one this year. So, yeah, I mean, I think it was a, it was a weird year for Nadal. I mean, I think he, take away take Djokovic out of the equation, and he's, you know, he's great. But there's one guy who he didn't have any answers for. Okay, I'm kind of a casual tennis guy here, and I think I just asked you all the questions that I was supposed to ask you. What did I miss? What was kind of like a storyline that went on at this U.S. Open that the true tennis people are maybe excited about or curious to see how it goes? What was kind of something a little bit off the radar that emerged out of this U.S. Open? Ooh, that's a good question. Um... You know, I don't know how inside baseball you want to get, but, you know, there's a great tournament for eight days, right? The crowds are great. The Americans are playing well. All the stars are winning. The prospects are sort of making do. The American players look strong. And then it starts to rain, and then everything just absolutely went to hell. Yeah. And during that time, a lot of interesting stuff came out. I mean, we sort of saw how frustrated the players are with their representation. We sort of see how the USTA... Um, you know, has, has alienated some fans and some players along the way. There were a lot of sort of discussions about money and resources and representation. And this is sort of what's held tennis back. The structure of tennis is really screwed up. You've got great players. You've got great people. And I think it's going to be interesting to see sort of if tennis really changes itself structurally. Are the players going to form a union? Are people going to end up boycotting events over money? I mean, it's sort of interesting. All these issues got sort of all these all these issues sort of came to the surface during these rain delays. And we'll sort of see how much of it was just, you know, frustrated players on days when there was nothing else to do and media had nothing much more to write about, or if these are really sort of sowing the seeds of, uh, I don't want to say revolution, but uh, but of change. I mean, the, the other big story for me is just what is going on with Serena Williams, right. who was just absolutely bizarre. I mean, she's she's almost 30 years old, and how does she recover from this, and sort of what's the next? I mean, this has been... A lot of drama in this narrative, and we'll sort of see what the next chapter is, because, boy, did she, uh, you know, it looked like a great story. She'd had this near-death experience. Suddenly it looked like she was going to win another major. She was beating everybody left and right. She beat the number one player, like the number one player was a junior, and then Saturday it just all exploded, and we'll uh, we'll sort of see what the fallout is from that. All right, it's the sports Sportscasters with John Wertheim. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter. He's John underscore Wertheim. Last question. Got to let you go a little earlier today than usual, but I'm sure we'll talk again. So my last question for you is just, is there any progress on Scorecasting 2? And if not, and if not, what can we kind of look forward to? Are you working on anything big for the magazine or anything like that? Because I always want to know what's next for you. Um, what is going You know, I'm do- doing a lot of video stuff. Got some stories on, uh, a story on John Joe, uh, Pride of Upstate New York. Oh, he probably yeah. lives next door to John Jones, uh, UFC fighter, coming out next week. And then, yeah, we're we're still uh, we're we're kicking around what to do next with scorecasting. We're trying to, uh, you know, are we going to do a straight sequel, or are we going to try and use some of the same, uh, you know, some of the same principles, but look at something like, you know, something else within sports and make it more of a narrative. We're trying to sort of pin that down. So uh, now you're making me feel guilty. I got to go back to a proposal. <laughs> All right, it's my main man, John Wertheim, literally one of the nicest guys we met since we started this. I've got to let you go, but I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Thank you very much for your time today, John. Hey, thanks. Tell your brother. It's only going to get better from here. We'll do it that way. We'll do. Thanks, buddy. All right, thanks a lot. 
My boyfriend Steve on the Sportscasters. And, oh yeah, Don's on it too. Welcome back, Tam. <laughs> I brought it all one back. Yeah. been a while. All right, that, well, first, I have to thank John Wertheim. What a guy. Man, to have John Wertheim, Lee Jenkins, and Jason Lockenfor on the show, I'm so excited to get this out there. I can't wait for everyone to listen to it. So let's do the last thing we have to do, get it over with. There is a chance that some of the listeners might call in during this segment. We gave them one last chance and say missed out on five on fantasy. But this is it. Last chance. Pick four. I personally was dying for football season to come back because I thought once football season comes back. Yeah, we know football. We're no, we know football. We're going to be back in our wheelhouse. We are going to just dominate. Well, didn't go that great in week one. But I'm not that discouraged because week one is always the hardest. Uh, I went one and three. I had the Patriots minus seven against the Dolphins. Uh, that one was a victory for me. Um, let's see. I lost the Packers over the Saints, 42-34. I lost the Ravens over the Steelers, and the Colts did not uh, win one for the Gipper for me. <laughs> so I went one and three. I'm 66 and 71. Uh, Don won the Packers over the Saints. And he won Dallas over the Jets, plus four. Just squeak that one out. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he lost Chicago over Atlanta. I think that's one that stunned him quite a bit. Oh, yeah. And um, he also lost Cleveland over Cincinnati, minus 14. Yeah, they didn't even win. No, Cincinnati won that one outright. So as we stand right now, we both have 66 wins. Uh, I have 71 losses. Don has 73. If you're wondering how that's possible, way back when, Don got two bonus victories yep. for NHL free agent uh, predictions. So that's why he stands with the same amount of wins but two more losses than me because he had two bonus points. So Don's going to kick us off. All right, the game of the week. This week we couldn't find an NFL game that we thought would match the, what is it, one versus four game in college football. So we're going to go OU at FSU. That's 8 p.m. On Saturday, I don't have the station here. It's probably ESPN, I imagine, or ABC. Do you know what station that's on? Uh, Yeah, it's on ABC. ABC, right. Um, I'm going to go with OU, minus three. That seems like a pretty generous line. Uh, I know they're on the road, so that'll make it a little bit tough. But I think they can pull it out as long as their defense can uh, keep the passing yards down. Florida's just been throwing on everybody. Look it. I'm a Sooners fan. Everybody knows I'm a Sooners fan. Oklahoma dominated this game last year, okay? It was in Oklahoma, and that plays a part because Landry Jones traditionally has been a much better quarterback in Oklahoma than he has been away from Oklahoma. But we're still talking about the number one team in the nation who didn't play that great in their first game and won (laughs) 47-14. I think they're going to be a little bit too talented, a little bit too much for kind of a Florida State team that maybe is on the rise, but not quite ready to win a game at 8 o'clock with the whole nation watching. Hopefully this game can be as great as the 8 o'clock game on ABC was last week with Michigan and Notre Dame as we played the clip off the top. But hopefully Oklahoma's the winner. I'm going to take Oklahoma, and I'm going to lay the four points. Oh, you got four? Okay, I had three. My host choice this week is San Diego at New England. 
we've talked about it before. It just looks like New England is looking to make a statement this year. New England's laying seven points to San Diego, but San Diego struggled to put up points and struggled to even beat Minnesota, who many people think are going to be a basement dweller this year. New England certainly looks like they're ready to play. So I, I'll gladly give uh, seven to San Diego. Take yeah, the I have the same game. Look at I'm going to ride New England right now until they until they convince me otherwise. I've seen this coming for a while. I've seen it brewing during the preseason when they were playing players a little bit longer. They were bullying people, beating teams up. I think they're in FU mode like Bill Simmons always said they were in their big, huge season. Oh, I think we got a hijacker. We do have someone hijacking. All right, let's too. pause this. This is the Sportscasters. Yo, man, it's uh, it's Texas. What's up, buddy? So you hijacked the show here because you beat who? Did you beat me or did you beat Don? I beat Don. You got a you got a pretty good lead on your man. Ugh. I wasn't close. I don't think uh, your game was close. Well, actually, I lost too because Tom Brady blew oh, up. Man. Yeah, you were right. Hey. I I was way up. I had the third most points in the league, and I lost with over 160 points. All right, so you won. You won fair and square. You beat Don. You beat him up pretty good. Uh, he's sitting next to me. Why don't you uh, just, uh, talk a little shit, you know, get on his case a little bit, huh? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, I'm not good at this shit, man. I, I'm decent. I had to... Uh-oh, you're breaking up. Oh, no. It's not even me. I'm ready to take my medicine. Something's breaking up on his end. Unbelievable. You know, we try something new. We go out out on a limb, try something new, try to get the people involved, and we got some guy calling from a cricket phone or something that's breaking up the second he talks to us. All right, I'll help him out. I had Peyton Hillis starting. What was I thinking drafting him? Uh, Probably third overall. What a bum he is. Ben Jarvis Green-Ellis, embarrassing. If he doesn't score that touchdown, I get beaten even worse. Uh, His team put up like 140 points. I actually scored 128 points. All right, he's back. All right, Don. Try again. Give him another chance. Let's try this again. How you doing, buddy? What I'm you, doing fine, what man. You, My bad, I got cut off. But uh, you got a yeah, cricket phone over there or right something? Now. Yes. Matchup. What happened? This guy started matchup. Matchup goes up thirty-four nothing and still only gets eight fantasy points out of it. It's ridiculous. Yeah, that was a that was a bust. Yeah. <laughs> so you took care of business. You won the game. You're one and zero. But let's get to know you a little bit. Where are you from? What do you do? Are you a student? Are you in college? And the one thing we want to know is how did you become a fan of the show? If you are a fan of the show, you might just you know <laughs> think the show sucks and wanted to play fantasy football. I don't know. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I grew up in Houston, Texas. I uh, 15 moved to Philly by myself. Go to Penn State now. Studying international economics. Uh, international politics and economics. It's, uh, it's my fifth year. Fifth year senior. So I'm done after this. Years of Penn State, that's a lot of fun to have, man. It's, it's all over now. But, uh, yeah, man, I just one day I, I just, uh, I, you know, I just got done with uh, our fantasy football draft from, uh, from all, you know, I mean, my close circle of friends here at Penn State. I just searched fantasy football. I was trying to find a draft I could jump in. I found you guys. Either way, I looked y'all up, and I still, uh, I listened to a couple uh, of uh, podcasts y'all did. Um, yeah, I'm definitely going to be a regular listener, at least uh, for duration of the season. Awesome. I want to know what's up with the league. Yeah, well, you're going to love this show. We had Jason Lock and Fora on uh, from the NFL Network, so you're going to enjoy listening to that interview. 
We had Lee Jenkins on, who was uh, at the Cowboys and Jets game. You're going to enjoy that. Uh, so this would be a great show if you're a big football fan, and we're glad you found us. Another oh, question. Yeah, I, I was uh, looking on Twitter and I saw you had all these guests on. Um, yeah, I mean it's no, it's no tiny show. I mean y'all definitely got good guests on. Yeah, we can we bring it when it comes to our bookings. So you're finishing up your college there at Penn State. Did you go to the game this weekend against Alabama? Man, I was yeah, the game. I was a sick atmosphere. It was pretty nice. I haven't seen a game like that since we played Notre Dame my freshman season. My, I mean, my freshman year. That shit, was, that shit was fucking amazing, man. I, I, I love it. Yeah, and Penn State should have... Yeah, and Penn State should have a great season. I mean, up until their last three games of the season, it seems like they should win <laughs> They should win the next bunch of games, huh? Yeah, man. We got the last three games. What, Wisconsin, Nebraska. Yeah, and Wisconsin's in there, too. All right, well, we're going to have to let you go because you are breaking up a little bit, but we're glad you're on. And uh, if you do, if you do beat one of us again, we'll be glad to have you on again. Uh, so thanks for joining oh, us. All right, buddy, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Get to winning the whole league. All right, sounds good. If you win the whole league, <laughs> you get to do a whole segment with us. So uh, all right, man. All right we'll look forward to it. Yep, Take we'll talk care. to you soon, buddy. Nice game. Okay, so that wasn't bad. A little technical difficulties. Little technical difficulties. Didn't have the best uh, connection there. But so we can he, clean that up maybe a little bit. He's from Texas, he said. From Texas, but he goes to Penn State Goes to State Penn now. State. Was he the one during the draft that was the Texas fan? No, he was the one talking all kinds of crazy junk in the draft room, remember? About Texas, though. Just in general, I thought. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> he was the big uh, big stir. But we were, uh, we were in the middle of pick four, and I was in the middle of saying, I'm taking New England minus seven. Yeah, I think I said that, too. Yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. My worldwide leader this week, I'm going to go with the Monday night game because uh, why not? I like the Rams still. Um, I didn't expect them to win last week. I think that's a pretty tall order to ask them to beat the uh, Vince Young appointed dream team. But they're getting five, getting five points. I know they're on the road at the Giants, but the Giants haven't looked fantastic all preseason or the first week, really. And I'll take the Rams plus their five points. It sounds like Bradford's going to play, and Cadillac Williams did somewhat admirably in Stephen Jackson's absence. So even if he's not there... I think the Rams can hold them to within five. Interesting you mentioned that game because uh, I'm going to go against the team that you mentioned, kind of beat up on the Rams a little bit, and that's Philadelphia. Philadelphia plays Atlanta this week, and Atlanta was embarrassed by Chicago. But I think that they're a much better team than that. Yeah. And they're also getting three points. It gives me a little bit of cushion if it's a really close game. Uh, so I'm going to take Atlanta plus three over Philadelphia. It's a Sunday night football game. It's on uh, Sunday the 19th, 8.20 on NBC. All right, and my bold prediction this week, I'm going to kind of use a similar prediction to what I had last week just with a better result, hopefully. I'm going to take the Saints this week, and I believe they're a seven-point favorite over the Bears. I still don't believe in the Bears. Uh, I know I probably should because of what they did to Atlanta, but uh, if you read my prediction on the blog spot, uh, I, I just don't think they're the – I can't see them – making the playoffs again or even coming close. I think they it was smoke and mirrors last year. The one thing I will say is Matt Forte looks legit, like almost <laughs> more as a receiver, but uh running backs under Mike Martz have always looked like have always been good receivers. But I'm gonna take the Saints minus fourteen. I was talking to you after the Saints game, um on the way to Pearl Jam actually, and we both kind of decided if the Saints play that same game every week they probably go fifteen and one. Right. 
And I think they start this week proving to teams that that's who they are. So I think the, I'll take the Saints minus 14. All right, my bold prediction. We talked a little bit about five in fantasy. We talked a little bit how Cam Newton really had a great debut. He threw for over 400 yards, but maybe make him do it twice. My prediction is that in his second game, he's going to throw for less than 200 yards. He is staring the Packers right in the face. It's going to be a much more difficult game than the one he just played. Um, so I am going to take uh, as my bull prediction that Cam Newton will be under 200 yards passing. All right, that's going to just about do it for today. I uh, want to remind everyone, check us out on Facebook. Of course, it's facebook.com slash thesportscasters. You can find us on Twitter. We're twitter.com slash sports underscore casters. You can find Don at Don Like Sports. And you can find myself at diversity23. Uh, we are the sportscasters at gmail.com. Feel free to email us anytime. Our blog is the sportscasters.blogspot.com. We got some new content up there for you, the sportscasters.blogspot.com. And our website, where you can find all this information and more, is sports-casters.com. Don't forget you can f- survive, not survive, but subscribe to the podcast <laughs> on iTunes. You can su- subscribe to the podcast on Downcast, Instacast, Stitcher. We're all over the place. We should be easy to find. Uh, I want to thank our guests once again. Today we had Jason Lockenfora, Lee Jenkins, John Wertheim, and we will be back next week. It might be Wednesday. It might I want to just say that up front. There's a chance that because of the premiere of Pearl Jam 20. We may have mentioned we're a fan of. We may have mentioned we like Pearl Jam. Uh, we may not be able to do our show on the usual Tuesday, but... When we started this, we've always kind of promised that new episodes would be available on Wednesday, Wednesday. and we always kind of post them on Tuesday anyway, so I think it's fair game there. There's a chance it might not be posted until Wednesday next week, so I'm sorry to those who are are excited on Tuesdays for it to come out, kind of the way I'm excited uh, for Tuesday nights to be able to download the new Sports Illustrated, but at the latest, we will be here next Wednesday. That's it for today. Don's going to cue the hip, and uh, we'll see you next week. All right.